All right, well, howdy! We are excited that you guys are back here with us tonight and rejoining us for our second night of our event. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. A couple quick announcements for you guys. Uh, Dr. Turek has a resource table in the foyer. So if you guys would like to buy any of his materials, his book or his DVDs, they are out there that you guys can purchase. It'll be some great resources to follow up along with his talks. Also for you college students, I want to announce to you guys tonight that uh, we are doing signups for our college retreat. Love for you guys to be a part of that. Love for you guys to sign up. Y'all can do that tonight. And so we're glad that you guys are here tonight. I'm going to not take up any more time and go ahead and hand things over to Dr. Turek. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I got to say howdy. Howdy! How many were here last night or were somewhere else at the time? (laughs) Got you again. Okay. How many were not here last night? Not here. Oh, okay. That's a lot of people. All right, what we're going to do then is uh, do a little review. Would that be all right? We'll do a little review because this is a two-part deal. And last night we covered the first half. Tonight we'll cover the second half. But what we'll do is we'll review what we did last night. And last night we started with the question, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? Is life just a glorified Monopoly game? Get a whole bunch of stuff now because when the game is over, it's all going to go back in the box. Is that what life's about? I said, I don't think so. I don't think life's a glorified Monopoly game. I think that we can find our divine purpose in this ancient collection of books that we call the Bible. But when, of course, you say that, particularly on a college campus, people think you're nuts. So I want to give you some evidence as to why I think this book is true. And we said last night that there are four basic questions that we need to answer in the affirmative if we're going to claim that the Bible is true. And this is from our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The first question is, does truth exist? The Bible can't be true if truth doesn't exist or if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative. If you can't answer those claims, you can't say this book is true. Of course, if there is no truth, then Stephen Hawking's book can't be true either. He says you don't need God to start the universe. I mean, if there's no truth, the atheists aren't right either. So you can see there's a problem with the claim there is no truth. We'll get to that. We'll review it briefly. We covered it last night. Second question is, does God exist? The Bible can't be the word of God if there is no God. If there's no God, throw the Bible away and every other book that talks about God. Last night, we gave two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there. We'll review that evidence tonight. Then question number three is, are miracles possible? The Bible can't be true if miracles are not possible. We said last night that if God exists, miracles are possible. And not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred and we have scientific evidence for it. We'll get to that. We'll also deal with David Hume's argument against miracles, which is still being used at the university today in order to say that miracles don't occur. So we'll address that as well. Then and only then can we get to question number four, which is where all this is heading. Is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if we have an accurate, historically reliable account of miracles occurring in the first century to a man named Jesus and his apostles. And we can see if these 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we now have collected into what we call the New Testament tell us the truth about what happened to Jesus and the apostles. If they are historically accurate, then I think we have grounds to say the entire Bible is true. Why? 
Because Jesus, who's in the New Testament, if he really is God, as the New Testament claims he is, and of course that's a big if, but if he really is, then whatever God teaches is true. That seems to be axiomatic. Jesus taught that the entire Old Testament is the word of God. So if you get the New Testament being reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. And we said we have a TV program that goes into this. You'll see the four questions come up as I show you the intro. Here's the intro to the TV program. There's some grooving music right there, isn't it? Now, that TV program is on every Wednesday night at 9 and 1 a.m. Eastern, so that'd be, what, 8 and midnight here on DirecTV Channel 378. Do we have any people with DirecTV in here? DirecTV, can I see your hands? Okay, again, like six of us, all right? Why not everybody else? Come on, friends, don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you got to get DirecTV. Actually, you can watch it live on the internet if you happen to be... Uh, in front of your computer at that very time. Click on our website, crossexamined.org. It'll take you to another website that actually shows the NRB channel live uh, right from the internet. Also, radio, Saturday nights at, or Saturday mornings, I should say, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, AFR.net, 144 stations around the country. I don't know what they are, but you can get the stations there. Or listen live or listen in podcast. Uh, Now, what we do is we present evidence for Christianity. We cross-examine ideas against it. That's why our our ministry is called crossexamined.org. And we also take phone calls there. So uh, if you're more interested in this kind of material, you can go to our website or listen to the TV, the radio, and uh, get more info there. Now, this is the entire seminar. Uh, Yesterday, we covered points one and two. Today, we'll review points one and two, then get to three and four. And if I time this just right, we'll have absolutely no time for your questions. No, just like last night, we'll have time for your questions, and we'll hang out as long as you need to. If you want to ask questions, that's great. Any question uh, you want to ask is fine. Don't know if I'll have an answer, but I'll try. And I mentioned that the book is available, as so is a DVD set, which goes into all this material in a lot more depth than I can do so here. There's our website, and as I mentioned last night, all the proceeds from the sale of the book will go to Feed Needy Children. Mine, Okay. And we've got three kids, so my wife and I, we need some help, all right? Two of them are in college, which ain't cheap, but they're good kids. We are empty nesters, however, which is a good thing now. Do we have any other empty nester couples in here? Any empty nester couples? Okay. House stays clean, doesn't it? It's really good, really good. I mean, my wife and I are just starting over. I'm almost 50 now. But my wife says, I'm going to live to 100. I say, how come? How do you know that, dear? She said, because you look half dead already. I said, okay, thanks for that encouragement. So there's the website right there. Now, uh, we're going to start here at point one, and we're going to review what we did last night. I'm going to be leaving a lot out. How many were here last night? That's a good way of putting it. Okay, a lot of us were. So I'm going to go very quickly. I'm going to really speed up my pace here because I know I'm a little bit slow. And I'm going to go quickly through the material. I'm going to leave a lot out. Uh, But let's just cover briefly what we did last night. And as we mentioned last night, whenever you talk about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson, of course, who when Tom Cruise said, Colonel, I want the truth, he said, 
You can't handle the truth. And as we said last night, a lot of people can't handle the truth. They're saying there is no truth. They're saying it's true for you, but not for me. They're saying all truth is relative. And we define truth this way. We said truth is telling it like it is. We also defined it as truth is what corresponds to its referent. When referring to this book, I say this is a black Bible. That would be true. If I say it's a white Quran, that wouldn't be true. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to its object. These are all good definitions of truth. And we also said that all truth is absolute truth. Something that is true is true for all persons at all times in all places. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who deny this. In fact, some people will say things to you like this, there is no truth. And when they say there is no truth, you will say what to them? Is that true? Remember, we said this is probably the most important thing from the whole seminar, is learning how to identify self-defeating statements. We call this in the book the roadrunner tactic, and it makes you look, in one second, it makes you look like a super genius, okay? Just by turning a claim on itself. We also pointed this out last night, that when people say it's true for you but not for me, you can say to them what? Yeah, is that true for everybody? Is true for you but not for me true for everybody? Because if true for you but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because it's self-defeating. It violates what we call the law of non-contradiction, so it can't be true. We also pointed that sometimes scientists like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking will say things like this. There's no truth in anything but science. What's the problem with the claim? This is the interactive portion of the program. This is known as review. How can you refute this? Yeah, that's not a scientific claim. That's a philosophical claim. That's not a scientific truth. And as we saw last night, Stephen Hawking has several philosophical errors in his book that negate the entire book. I mean, he denies there's free will. He denies there's that you even exist. He denies there's an objective reality. He says free will is an illusion. Well, then so is everything he says in this book because he's not freely writing it. I like that. (laughs) By the way, anyone here from the class of 2014? Hey! Anyone from 2013? Hey! Whoa, we got some more 2013s. Let's see what the 2012s can do. And the 2010s? Now that's lame 2010s. I think the 2013's got it, don't you? Uh, That's right. All right. Quite good. But who am I to judge? You ought not judge. What's the problem with the claim? What's the problem with this claim? It's a judgment. So the next time somebody says you ought not judge, put your hands on your hips and say, then why are you judging me for judging? And we said last night that Jesus didn't say don't judge. Jesus said judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. He's not telling us not to judge. He's telling us how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. Christians make judgments. Everybody in between makes judgments. The only question is, are your judgments true? And we also pointed out that Jesus was no sissy either. Just read Matthew 23 if you think Jesus was a sissy. He went after people. He went after the political and religious leaders of the day. They were called the Pharisees. And he called them real naughty names. 
okay, because they needed to be called on the carpet. And sometimes you've got to stand up to people and tell them the truth. And we pointed out that this roadrunner tactic is an easy way for you to be a lie detector, which reminds us of Homer Simpson. Now we're going to run a few tests. This is a simple lie detector. I'll ask you a few yes or no questions, and you just answer truthfully. Do you understand? Yes. That's a five-minute summary of what took us a half an hour last night to do, but the bottom line is truth does exist, and you can know it. And if anyone says otherwise you can show them that it's self-defeating. The the next question we dealt with is, does God exist? And we said there are three great arguments for a theistic God. That's a God who's beyond the world, who created the world and sustains the world. A theistic God is like a painter is to a painting. Michelangelo paints the painting. His attributes are expressed in the painting, but Michelangelo is not the painting. And here here are the three arguments. We talked about last night the argument from the beginning of the universe, known as the cosmological argument. The argument from the design of the universe and the design of life, known as the teleological argument, and the argument from morality, known as the moral argument. The first two arguments are scientific in nature. The last one is philosophical in nature. And we began with the cosmological argument, and we said that this points back to the big bang. And we said virtually everyone now believes there was a big bang, and we gave the the, uh, surge evidence. That's an acronym that will help you remember the scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe. And when we say the beginning of the universe, we mean space, matter, and time had a beginning. And we went through this evidence in great detail last night. We talked about the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of entropy, that things tend to run down, and we can see that... We still have a sun up there, which means we still have energy, which means the universe must have had a beginning because if the sun or if the universe was eternal, the sun would have burned out a long time ago. So the universe had a beginning just by the second law of thermodynamics. We mentioned the U, uh, which stands for the fact that the universe is expanding, discovered by Edwin Hubble in 1929. He noticed that all the light from the galaxies was moving away from us, or the galaxies were moving away from us because he got a redshift in the light. And he deduced if we could watch all history in reverse, we would see everything collapse back to nothing. We talked about the radiation afterglow. That's the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion. That's literally the smoking gun from the Big Bang. The universe is still cooling off, and a couple of scientists in 1965 discovered the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion we now call the radiation afterglow. It's just a couple of degrees above absolute zero, but it's still out there. Then we talked about the great galaxy siege, which happened to be temperature variations in that radiation afterglow, and these were discovered by the Kobe Space Satellite in 1992, and according to the theory, these temperature variations, which were very precise, down to one part in 100,000, allowed the galaxies to form in the early universe. If those temperature variations were any different, we wouldn't even be here to know it. Then we talked about Einstein's theory of general relativity that showed that space, matter, and time are correlative, that they came into existence together, and general relativity has been proven accurate to more than five decimal points now. Space, matter, and time had a beginning just by Einstein's theory of general relativity, which led us to Robert Jastrow, the agnostic astronomer who wrote a book saying that the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. Other Nobel Prize winning physicists said this about the beginning. 
The best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. That's Arno Penzias. He helped discover the radiation afterglow. His colleague, Robert Wilson, said, certainly there was something that set it all off. I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match Genesis. George Smoot, the man who helped discover the great galaxy seeds, the G in Surge, put it this way. He said, there is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation out of nothing. And as we pointed out last night, we've got two options. If the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Seems to me it's much more reasonable to believe that someone created something out of nothing because nothing can't create nothing out of nothing. Then we talked a, a little bit about the design argument. Not only did the universe explode into being out of nothing, it did so with extreme precision. And this is sometimes called the anthropic principle that the universe is highly fine-tuned for life. And we saw that at the expansion rate of the universe, how precisely fine-tuned that was. We also saw it just in our own solar system. Last night we pointed out, there we are, third rock from the sun. And if we were just a little bit closer to or a little bit further away, we wouldn't be here. A little bit closer to, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what in scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It is not too hot. It is not too cold. It is just right. The axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. Perfect. Change it much, we're not here. Earth rotation, 24 hours. Change that much, we're not here. The size and distance of the moon from us, change that slightly. We don't exist. If oxygen were 25% in the atmosphere, we'd, or spontaneous fires would break out. If it were 15%, we'd suffocate. It's perfect where it is at 21. We mentioned that if Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. Because Jupiter acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner. It attracts the space junk to it rather than us. And we said if you take a close-up look at Jupiter, do you know what those purple marks are? Those purple marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. We talked about the anthropic principle uh, for the universe, and we also pointed out that life appears to be designed at its very basis. And we said even a simple one-celled amoeba has an incredible amount of information in it. And we pointed out that this information is similar to human language. In fact, it's mathematically identical to human language. And we asked you if you uh, wanted to have a bowl of alphabet cereal one day and you came downstairs and saw that the bowl was knocked over and on the table the letter spelled, take out the garbage, mom, what would you say? Would you say the cat knocked the box over or would you say that an earthquake shook the house? No, you'd say that's intelligent design from an intelligent being, mom. Or you're laying out on the beach one day and you see in the clouds, drink Coke. What do you assume, unusual cloud formation? Oh, I got it, wind coming from the north today? Oh no, it's got to be some sort of cloud evolution. No, you'd say there had to be a skywriter up there at some point. Why? Because in all your previous experience, messages only come from minds, They don't come from natural forces. Natural forces do the same thing over and over again. They don't make messages. In fact, as I pointed out last night, I think during the Q&A, if I were to ask you who made this book, you would rightfully say Stephen Hawking. You wouldn't say the laws of ink and paper, would you? Oh, the laws of ink and paper have something to do with this book, but they're not the primary cause of the book. The primary cause of the book is an intelligent agent. Why? Because there's information in here that comes from a mind. Information 
does not come in this sense from natural forces. It only comes from a mind. And we pointed out that the amount of information in a one-celled amoeba is like take out the garbage mom, it's just a lot more complicated. And we said that information in a one-celled amoeba is equivalent to a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia. Now, to believe that that resulted by natural forces is like believing that the Texas A&M library resulted from an explosion in a printing shop. I don't have enough faith to believe that. You have to have more faith to believe that all that came by natural forces, which have never been observed, by the way, than just to believe there's intelligence behind the first life. And we pointed out that even Richard Dawkins is the one that says there's this much information in an amoeba. Then we moved on to the moral argument last night, and we said if there is no God, then you can't say that this is really wrong, the Holocaust. Oh, you could say you didn't like it, you could say it made you sad, you could say it seemed awful to me, but you can't say it's objectively morally wrong. You could simply say it's my subjective opinion. I don't have enough faith to believe that that's just someone's opinion. It seems to me that's grounded in a being outside ourselves. If there is no God, then it's just your opinion against Mother Teresa's opinion or Hitler's opinion. And we pointed out the one of the ways that we can illustrate that there has to be a moral law beyond us is to try and compare Mother Teresa and Hitler. And when we see Mother Teresa and Hitler, we're really comparing them to a standard outside of both of them. Just like when we look at two maps of Scotland, the only way we can tell which map is closer to the real Scotland is to see the real Scotland. And when we compare the two, we can see that map A is a better representation of the real Scotland than is map B. If the real Scotland doesn't exist, those two maps are meaningless. But since Scotland does exist, we can see map A is better. And we pointed out last night that that's exactly what we do when we compare Mother Teresa and Hitler. Mother Teresa wasn't the standard. Hitler wasn't the standard. There's a standard beyond both of them by which we measure both of them. And we say Mother Teresa measured up to the real standard better than did Hitler. The standard is God's nature. There's not a standard beyond him. He just doesn't make things up. He is the standard. The buck needs to stop somewhere. If there's no God, there's nothing objectively wrong about anything. That was the moral argument. And we said yesterday, last night, if there is no objective morality, the Nazis were not really wrong. We also said that love is no better than rape. Freedom is no better than slavery. Tolerance is no better than intolerance. Religious crusades were not wrong because there's no standard of morality outside of us. So there's nothing evil. In fact, you can't complain about the problem of evil. As we said last night, C.S. Lewis ultimately realized this. Before he was a Christian, he was an atheist. And he said that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust to him. Well, how had he gotten this idea of just and unjust? Lewis writes, how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, you can't even know evil unless you know good. And you can't know good unless there's a standard of good beyond yourself. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God because you need good in order to even know evil. In other words, the shadows prove the sunshine. Evil proves there's good. You can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. You can't have shadows without sunshine. 
And we pointed out that Christopher Hitchens' book, when he said, religion poisons everything. First of all, religion does not poison everything. Everything poisons religion. I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. I admitted in the second debate I had with him, which is where this picture's from, that I'm a hypocrite. And everyone's a hypocrite, really. If you're not a hypocrite, your standards are too low. Okay, we're all hypocrites. We can't live up to the perfect standard. That's why we need a savior. So whenever someone says, I can't go to church because all those hypocrites down there, simply say to them, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. You see, that's what the church is. It's a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. And Hitchens actually is borrowing from a theistic worldview in order to argue against it. He's not only borrowing morality to say that Religious people are evil. He's actually borrowing reason, too, because there can be no such thing as reason unless there's a standard of reason beyond us. If we're just molecules in motion, we're not even really thinking. We're not rational. We just got molecules going on up here. It seems that our minds are made in the image of a greater mind, an immaterial mind. In fact, as we're talking right now, as I'm saying things, and hopefully you're understanding what I'm saying We're communicating, I'm communicating through immaterial laws, the laws of logic. They're not made of molecules. That seems to have its grounding in something outside of materials. Now, this doesn't necessarily prove Christianity is true at this point. It seems to me, though, to disprove atheism, materialism. Because in order for us to communicate right now, we're using immaterial laws, and atheists say those don't exist. And we had to be very clear when we're talking about the moral law to say we are not saying atheists can't be moral. They can. We're not saying atheists don't know morality. They do. We're simply saying that atheists can't justify morality. They can theorize about how we know murder's wrong, but atheism provides no immaterial objective standard that establishes why murder is wrong. You can't just say because society says so. Which society? Mother Teresa's or Hitler's? You can't just say it's for the betterment of society. What do you mean by better? That implies a standard outside yourself. This, as we pointed out last night, is the difference between epistemology and ontology. Epistemology is how you know something. Ontology is that something exists. And we can theorize all day about how we know murder is wrong, but unless there's a standard outside of humanity, you have no objective standard that establishes why murder is wrong. An immaterial objective standard of justice requires a theistic God. Then we wound up last night by saying, let's take these three arguments, the cosmological, teleological, and moral, and let's see what attributes we can draw from these basic arguments about the first cause. And we pointed out that from the cosmological argument, we can see the first cause is immaterial, timeless, and spaceless. Also, extremely powerful because he created out of nothing. From the design argument, we can see he's extremely intelligent. We also know he has purpose. We're here for a reason. We can also see from the moral argument that he's morally perfect, and he's also personal because you don't have a moral obligation to an impersonal force. You only have moral obligations to persons. When you go, to persons. When you go try and dunk a basketball, you're not sinning against the law of gravity. We also mentioned that we know the being is personal from the cosmological argument. Why? Because we went from a state of no creation to a state of creation. That involved making a choice, and only persons make choices. Impersonal forces don't make choices. Gravity doesn't make a choice as to whether or not it's going to pull this remote to the ground. It doesn't say to itself, well, look, if he drops that one more time, I'm not going to pull it to the ground. 
See, this is one reason amongst many while Hawking's quote in the back of his new book that says something like, because there's a law of gravity, the universe will create itself out of nothing is hogwash. First of all, gravity needed to be created itself. But secondly, gravity does not cause really anything. It doesn't bring things into existence. It just describes what happens under a certain set of conditions. If I have something and if I'm in a space-time continuum and I'm near an object, if I drop it, it's going to get pulled to the bigger object. That's what it describes. Gravity does not create anything. And we pointed out that these attributes, an immaterial, timeless, spaceless, extremely powerful, extremely intelligent, purposeful, morally perfect, personal creator, are the same attributes that the Bible ascribes to God. Now, does this mean at this point Christianity is true? No, it just means it's possible. Because there are other theisms out there, as you remember. There's Judaism and Islam and some, some other minor theisms as well. And we pointed out that if there is really a God out there and he wanted to get our attention, which, and he wanted to tell us which one of these world religions is true, what could he do? He could do something only he could do, and that would be a miracle. <sighs> okay, that was the review. How'd we do? All right, we're good. That's the review. So hopefully you guys who weren't here last night are kind of caught up with the general line of thinking here. As you know, we left a lot out. But can we move on from here? Okay, good. At least three of us say, yo, let's go. All right, are miracles possible? Let me ask you guys a question. Let's go back to the Middle Ages before there was any mass communications, internet, you know, TV, radio, telephone, telegraph, any of that stuff. If one king wanted to communicate with another king, you know, 100 miles away, how could he do it? He would send a messenger and, and send with a message. And what would be on the message that would authenticate it as coming from the king? A seal, right? There would be a seal on the message that would tell the other king that this message really came from the king who sent the message. Now, there had to be a couple of attributes of that seal in order for it to be something that is useful. Number one, it had to be unique. And number two, it had to be something difficult to forge. Because if it wasn't unique and difficult to forge, then anybody could take the seal and pass off a false message. Okay? It seems to me that's what miracles do. If God does exist, and I think the evidence is quite good he does... A miracle is sort of like his seal. It can tell us that he is speaking through the person who, through whom the miracle is done. So what's the purpose of a miracle? The miracle is to confirm the messenger. Now let's just go to look at the Bible for a second. How many miracles are there in the Bible from, say, Moses to Jesus, that period of time? Anyone? Approximately. How many miracles? Approximately. A lot. Okay, there's a good answer there. That's a Price is Right answer kind of thing. Yeah, a lot. About 300. Now, that's a 1,500 or so year period. So how often do you get a miracle if you got 300 miracles over a 1,500-year period? Math majors? Once, you get one miracle every five years. But does it happen that way in Old Testament history or into the New Testament? Do you get one miracle every five years? No. How do the miracles come? The miracles come in bunches. 
The miracle confirms the message. The sign confirms the sermon. That's the purpose. And if you notice in the New Testament, or in the Old and the New Testaments, when miracles are occurring through people, they occur in bunches around certain people. Miracles occur around Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Why? Because these are new prophets who need to be confirmed. There's a new message that needs a new miracle so the people will know this guy speaks for God. There's a new sermon that needs a new sign so the people will know this guy speaks for God. And these individuals and their cohorts here have a new message that needs to be confirmed. Now, if the scriptures are true, God is doing miracles frequently throughout the Old and New Testaments, but when he does them through people, he's doing them around these individuals because there's a new message that needs a new miracle. And you even saw this with uh, Moses, right? Moses is told by God, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What does Moses say? (laughs) Why is this guy going to believe me? What does God say? You're going to be able to do miracles. It's going to convince him ultimately that you speak for me. That's the purpose of a miracle. Now, for some reason, a lot of people believe miracles are impossible. For example, the Noah story seems to be completely outlandish. Is this really true? Noah and the ark? Well, first of all, every culture has a a, a great flood story. Yeah, but still, how could all these animals on one boat? Did it really happen? I actually think it did. In fact, uh, in 2006, I went to the, uh, I went with a friend of mine who's kind of a Christian Indiana Jones. His name is Bob Cornuke. Anyone here of Bob Cornuke? Anyone? A few of us in here? Uh, We went to Iran. We flew into Tehran because we had some intelligence that there could be remains of a great boat uh, to the northwest of Tehran. So we flew to Tehran. We went up into the mountains, the Elbers Mountains. We got up to about 13,000 feet, about 55 miles northwest of Tehran. uh, And we found an ancient mass. uh, It turned out to be rock, but it looked like it could have been a ship at one point. Uh, we brought it back to the United States. We had nine samples with us. Five of them tested as petrified wood. And uh, it's at 13,000 feet, above, about uh, 5,000 feet above the tree line. So there's no trees up there. This isn't a bunch of fallen trees or anything. It looked like it could have been planking on the side of a ship at one point. It's about the size of what the Bible calls the ark. But we couldn't prove it was Noah's ark because it didn't say USS Noah on the side. Okay, there's no way of knowing for sure. It's just an interesting find. If you want more on that, go to our website, crossexamined.org. Hit the links page. It'll take you over to Bob Cornuke's site. His site is called baseinstitute.org. You can read all about it. National Geographic, AOL, Good Morning America picked up on the expedition. Also, a lot of people think resurrections don't occur because everyone they know who's died is still dead. How can you believe in a resurrection? That seems outlandish. And for some reason, the greatest miracle in the Bible people have trouble with is Jonah. Is that a tale of a whale or a whale of a tale? I mean, what's the deal with Jonah? Is that historical or hysterical? Please. Now, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? People always say the resurrection. No, the resurrection is a sissy miracle compared to the greatest miracle. Yes, the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is possible. 
We now have scientific evidence that the first verses are is true, that the greatest miracle of all has already occurred. So these lesser miracles are easy for an omnipotent God that can create the universe out of nothing. I mean, if there is a God who creates the whole show out of nothing, can he do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe? Can he do the Noah miracle? Can he rise somebody from the dead or raise somebody from the dead? Can he keep Jonah alive in a whale for three days or kill him and resurrect him after three days? Of course, it's easy for a God who can create the universe out of nothing. God can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible. You said, wait a minute, what's this logically impossible stuff? I thought God can do anything. No, God can't do anything. There are some things God can't do. Like he can't cease being God. That would make him weaker if he could cease being God. He can't lie. He can't change. He can't make a square circle. It's no such thing. It's a contradiction. He can't make a married bachelor. He can't make an honest politician, okay? There are just some things that are too hard for even God. He can't make a rock so big he can't move it. Why? If if anyone ever gives you that, oh, can God create a rock so big he can't move it? Just ask that person, how big's the rock? Person's going to go big. You go, how big is big? They go, really big. Well, how big is really big? Infinitely big. Now, they've just crossed over into what logicians call a category mistake. You can't have an infinitely big, finite rock. (laughs) You see, any rock is finite. So any rock God can make, God can move. But even God can't make an infinitely big, finite rock. That's a category mistake, like an honest politician. It doesn't happen. Okay? Apologies to politicians in here. Notice, by the way... That Jesus related to, if the New Testament documents are reliable, two of the most controversial miracles in the Old Testament to his own life. He related Noah and Jonah to his own life. Now, do you think Jesus thought that Noah and Jonah were historical or hysterical? He thought they were historical. And of course, if it's true that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, then any miracle you read about in the pages is at least possible. The only question now, is it actual? C.S. Lewis put it well, as he always did. He said, but if we admit God, must we admit miracles? Indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. You say, okay, if God exists, I'm sure miracles are possible. But what about David Hume? How many have heard of David Hume, by the way? I just want to be clear in here. Any philosophy majors in here? A few of us, a couple of us? David Hume, a very influential philosopher, probably the only true atheist in the Enlightenment. He died in 1776. And Hume came up with an argument against miracles, at least the belief in miracles, that is still being used in the modern university today. Here is Hume's objection to miracles. He said, natural law is by definition a description of a regular occurrence. If I continue to drop this remote over and over again, I observe this over and over again. I'll make the inductive conclusion eventually. There's got to be some sort of natural force. Let's call it gravity that continues to pull this object. And if I drop all these other objects to the ground, that's a natural law. It happens over and over again. It's regular. That's his first premise. His second premise is that a miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. Look, if resurrections happened every day, they wouldn't be miracles, would they? They have to be rare in order to get our attention. A miracle has to be rare. Otherwise, it loses all the value of us saying God must have done it. 
If resurrections occurred frequently, we'd probably say, well, it's some sort of natural phenomenon that people can die and then come back to life. So by definition, it seems Hume is correct here that miracles must be rare if they're going to do what they're supposed to do, and that is to get our attention, that it's a sign from God. Thirdly, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. We see this every week when we watch football. We see a play from several different angles, slow speeds over and over again via instant replay. The ref sees it full speed from one angle, bang, and he's got to make a call. The evidence for the regular, the slow motion over and over again, is better than that for the rare. The guy sees it once from one angle and has to make the call. That's Hume's third premise. His fourth premise is a wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. That seems axiomatic. You're not going to base your belief on the lesser evidence, right? So here's Hume's conclusion. Therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. Now, if these four premises are correct, then the conclusion necessarily follows. There's got to be something wrong with one of these four premises, one or more of these four premises, in order for this conclusion not to follow. Does anyone know which premise is wrong? Huh? No, the first is good. Natural law is by definition a rare occurrence. Number three, why? Because there's greater evidence for miracles. Well, you're getting close. But yeah, you are correct. Number three is the problem. The evidence for the regular is not always greater than that for the rare. Now, if you want to refute somebody's argument, you have to use, or a good way to refute somebody's argument, is to use beliefs that they have that don't meet their argument. In other words, if we take this premise that the evidence is always greater for the regular than the rare and apply it to other beliefs you might have, and that premise refutes these other beliefs, then there's a problem with this premise. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to look at beliefs that Hume would have if he were here today, because he was an atheist. Here's evidence that evidence for the regular is not always greater than that for the rare. The Big Bang is not based on regular events, yet if Hume were here today, he'd believe it. Why? Because the evidence is quite good. We don't see it over and over again. It's not the Big Bang, 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 Bang theory, okay? It's the Big Bang Theory. It happened once. It's a singular event, yet Hume would have good reason to believe it. We have good evidence it occurred. Secondly, the origin of life on earth does not occur regularly, yet we all should believe that it happened here at some point. Pasture's beaker is still sterile. We never see the spontaneous generation of life from non-life. Yet at some point it happened, didn't it? And it seems like it happened by intelligence, but that's a whole other question. The point is, we don't see it over and over again, but we should have good reason to believe it. We're here. It happened at one point. Macroevolution cannot be repeated. If it happened at all, it happened only once. Yet if Hume were here, he would say, well, macroevolution's true. That does not meet his criteria either. In fact, we can't observe macroevolution. We can observe microevolution, but we can't observe macroevolution. We always run into genetic barriers. Dog breeders can breed the Chihuahua up to the Great Dane, but they can't go beyond those genetic limits. And with all their intelligence, they can't break those limits. So my question is, well, if applying all our intelligence runs into genetic limits, why should we expect non-intelligence to break those limits? Doesn't seem to make any sense. In fact, there's a 
There's a biologist from, I think he's the University of Pittsburgh. He's been working with E. coli bacteria for 25 or 30 years. They have a very short lifespan, so he can look at generation after generation and really see if macroevolution can work. He's been through, I think, about 40,000 generations of E. coli bacteria, and what does he have today? E. coli bacteria. He can't get it to morph into any other type of creature. But the point here is, is if it happened at all, it happened only once. Also, the entire history of the earth cannot be repeated. If Hume were consistent, he ought not believe in his own birth because it happened only once. In fact, this is true with all of history. For those of you who were here last night, even though last night's event happened only once, you have good evidence to believe it. Why? Because you were eyewitnesses to it. You can't go back and observe it again. All you can do is take the eyewitness testimony you had and say, yes, it really happened. Now, notice Hume's argument is not really an argument against the possibility of miracles. What's it an argument against? It's an argument against the believability of miracles. Hume is saying you ought not believe it. Well, there's a problem with an argument that says you ought not believe something that really happened. This argument fails, and yet people still believe it. You say, well, why do people still believe it? Why don't more scientists believe in miracles? You see, this, this man is Richard Lewontin. He teaches at Harvard University. He's a Marxist. He's a Darwinist. He's an atheist. He's got a lot of ist behind his name. But in 1997, he had a very, very candid admission in the New York Times review of books about miracles. Here's what he said. He said, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, meaning our prior adherence to material causes, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. What? He's being honest. He doesn't want God involved. Unless he philosophically rules God out, he's going to have to deal with the possibility that there's an intelligence out there, and he doesn't like that. Why not? Well, there could be a number of reasons. If there's an intelligence out there, then maybe the general public is not going to see scientists as the new priests who dispense information to them. If he admits there's intelligence out there, he may not be held in high esteem by his materialist colleagues. He may not get the grant money he's looking for. Also, if he admits there's intelligence out there and this intelligence brings morality with him, then he might not want to bow his knee to a creator. A friend of mine speaks on a lot of college campuses. He was invited by a college biology professor once to speak to his biology class. My friend went into the class. He talked about some of the problems with the Darwinian theory of evolution. After the class, he went out to lunch with the professor who invited him in, and he said to him, hey, what did you think of my lecture? And the professor said, I think what you say is right, Ron. I think there are a lot of problems with Darwinian theory, but I'm going to keep teaching Darwinism anyway. And Ron said to him, well, why would you do that? And the guy said, to be honest with you, Ron, if we truly came from slimy green, green algae, then I can sleep with whoever I want. Darwinism is morally comfortable. Now, he was just being honest. Did you happen to see the end of the movie Expelled? Did anyone see the movie Expelled in here? Expelled really isn't necessarily about intelligent design. What it's really about is academic freedom. And that people who say there could be an intelligence beyond the world 
are harassed, they're denied tenure, they're denied the ability to publish in many cases. Well, Ben Stein narrates the thing. At the end of the movie, which he's interviewing both intelligent design proponents and opponents, he interviews Richard Dawkins. And he asks Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins, how did life begin? And Dawkins says, well, I have no idea. And Stein said, well, can you give me the best explanation you might have at this point? And Dawkins says, well, I suppose you could say that life, the first life was brought here by aliens. This is a real theory, by the way, first formulated by Sir Fred Hoyle, who saw the incredible complexity of life and said there has to be intelligence behind here. After Dawkins said it could have been brought here by aliens, Stein said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Dr. Dawkins believes in intelligent design. Why did he say that? Because an alien is still an intelligent designer. If an alien brings life here, that's an intelligent being. Of course, it just puts off the question one more step. Where did the alien come from? Because the alien is inside the universe. The alien's not outside the universe. So natural laws couldn't have created the alien either. That alien would need a creator. But why would Dawkins say it's okay if an alien created life but not God? Perhaps because an alien does not bring morality with him, but God does. See, that's really the issue for many people. Not all, but it's the issue for many people. Thomas Nagel teaches at NYU. He's an atheist. He was reviewing Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, and he concluded, Dawkins and Hitchens have a cosmic authority problem. They don't want there to be a God. And if you read Hitchens' book, particularly the last chapter, he says, I will not live under this divine tyranny. God is a divine dictator. He doesn't like that. That's why I summed up his book at the end of the debate. If you could sum up Christopher Hitchens' book in one sentence, it would be this. There is no God, and I hate him. He doesn't want there to be a God. So Nagel said that Hitchens and Dawkins have a cosmic authority problem. And you know what? Nagel admitted he does too. He says, I don't want the universe to be that way. I don't want there to be a God. How much is unbelief motivated by the will, not the mind? Sometimes belief is motivated by the will, not the mind too. The sword cuts both ways. There's a lot of Christians who just believe because they want to believe. I'm saying let's take a look at the evidence and see what's true. I was in Michigan, a college in Michigan last week. After I gave the cosmological argument during the Q&A, some guy sitting over here said, you're wrong. I said, okay, well, how am I wrong? He wouldn't say why. And he was real testy. So I said, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, will you give me an honest answer? He said, yeah, go ahead. I said, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? He said, no. I said, well, why are we even doing this then? Why don't we just go have pizza? How could you be so irrational to say that if something were true, you wouldn't believe it? See, it's not just up here. A lot of times it's right here. People don't want there to be a God. They want to go their own way. You know what God says? Fine, have it your way. I'm a loving being. I will not force myself on you. If you don't want me, that's fine. I will separate myself from you. That's what hell is. Let's move on to the key question now. Is the New Testament true? Remember, truth does exist. It's self-defeating to say it doesn't. Seems like God does exist. We've got those three arguments and many others. Uh, miracles are possible. Of course they're possible because the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, the creation of the universe out of nothing. The only question now is, have miracles occurred since the first one? 
that can authenticate Jesus and the apostles. Hey, you guys, don't be two percenters now. I can't, do we, we don't have any more two percenters in here, do we? You guys aren't going to leave early, are you? I mean, that's like saying University of Texas in here. See? Don't try it. All right, is the New Testament true? Is the New Testament true? There are two questions we need to answer if we're going to say that the New Testament documents are reliable. The first question is, do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? The second question is, do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? For many years, Christians would say, oh yeah, we've got all these manuscripts, we can figure out what the New Testament documents said. Yeah, that's important, but so what? You can have an accurate copy of a lie, right? It's one thing to say you have an accurate copy. It's another thing to say the copy tells the truth. Now, the answer to question one is yes. It's all in chapter nine of the book. I don't have time to get into it in here. You can get the book if you want more. If you have a question about Bart Ehrman, bring it up in the Q&A. Bart Ehrman is a guy that seems to say to question one, the answer is no, but in reality, he doesn't. If you have a question... We can deal with that now. I'm going to move on to question two because that is the more interesting question anyway. Do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? Do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? And there are six lines of testimony I'd like to give you to show you that the New Testament documents tell the truth. I'm going to list the six right now. We're going to go through four of them tonight. The book has actually 10 in chapter 11 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's the top 10 reasons we know the New Testament writers told the truth. I'm just going to talk about four of them. I'm going to list six of them and talk about four. They all begin with the letter E. The first is we have early testimony, and I'll explain these when we get to them. The second E is we have eyewitness testimony. The third E is we have embarrassing testimony. You're going, what is that? We'll get there. The fourth E is we have excruciating testimony. The fifth E is we have expected testimony. That deals with prophecy from the Old Testament. And the sixth E is extra-biblical testimony. In other words, there are ten, ten ancient non-Christian sources outside of Jesus, or outside of the New Testament documents that talk about Jesus and the apostles within 150 years of Christ's life. These are six good lines of evidence that show that the New Testament documents are telling the truth. We'll start with early testimony. Let's go back to the first century. And let's look at two events in the first century that bookend uh, 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. Virtually every scholar agrees with this, atheist or not, that the cross of Christ was sometime 30 to say 33 A.D., somewhere in there. He was crucified there. And the temple in the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, the Roman emperor, in 70 AD. No serious historian disputes any of this. The question now is, what's going on in that one generation within the first century? We know that Paul was killed at the hands of Nero sometime in the mid to late 60s. We have good evidence for that. Secondly, we know James, the half-brother of Jesus, is killed as a martyr in the city of Jerusalem, the very city that Jesus is supposed to have risen from the dead. How do we know this? Do the New Testament documents tell us this? No. Josephus and another historian tell us that James was killed in Jerusalem in 62 AD. Who is Josephus? Jewish historian. 
He was killed as a martyr. He was thrown off the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. When he hit the ground, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, found him still alive, so they bludgeoned him to death. Now, this is the same James who did not believe Jesus was God when Jesus was on the earth before Jesus rose from the dead. And now here, 30 years after the alleged resurrection of Jesus, he's dying as a martyr in the very city Jesus is supposed to have risen from the dead in. Why is that? Maybe because he did see a resurrected Christ. We know that Acts is written by 62 AD for a number of reasons I don't have time to go into. They're all in the book. And we know that 1 Corinthians is written by about 55 AD. Nobody disputes that. There's archaeological evidence which pinpoints 1 Corinthians. And more importantly, in 1 Corinthians, there's a creed that goes all the way back to the crucifixion and resurrection itself. The creed is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. The New Testament documents contain at least 41 creeds that are put into the New Testament documents, even though they were developed much earlier than when they were written down. It was an oral culture. They remembered things orally. And when Paul and the other apostles started writing letters, they included some of these creeds in their writings. This creed is probably the most important evidence for the resurrection in any of the New Testament documents. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. And if you read it, you will see a rhythm to it. And this creed, even atheistic scholars say, predates 40 AD. Many say it goes all the way back to the event itself, within just a few months after the event. Now, if Luke, or Acts is written by uh, 62 AD, what's written prior to Acts? Luke. How do we know that? Luke wrote both books. In the, f- in the first verse of the book of Acts, it says, in my former work, O excellent Theophilus, what's the former work for Luke or for Acts? the gospel of Luke. And many, of course, believe Mark is prior to Luke. Some say even Matthew's prior to Mark. So you early have, already have early testimony. Now, I may be going out on a limb here. Check me if I am. But I would have to say that Paul wrote all of his works before he died. <laughs> is that a fair assessment? These are the undisputed works of Paul, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians. There are several others, but that's all you need for testimony for the New Testament. And now I'd have to say that most, if not all, the New Testament documents are written prior to 70 A.D. Well, how do we know this? What happened in 70 A.D.? A cataclysmic event. The Romans came into the city, and according to Josephus, who was one of the rebels, the greatest war of all time took place. Josephus in 66 A.D. was surrounded by the Romans with many of his Jewish cohorts. And instead of committing suicide like some of his Jewish cohorts, Josephus surrendered to the Romans. He won favor with the Roman emperor and was taken to Rome and ultimately became the greatest Jewish scholar or the greatest Jewish historian of that century. He was born in 37 AD. He died in 100 AD. And Josephus was there for this war. He called it the greatest war of all time. Thousands of villages were burned. Over a million people were killed, according to Josephus. Yet nowhere, in fact, the temple is destroyed too. The city's destroyed. Nowhere in the New Testament is it mentioned. Oh, actually, it is mentioned in one place. Jesus predicts it in Matthew 24. He says that not one stone will be left upon another. And his disciples said, when is this stuff going to occur? 
And he said, before this generation passes away, all these things will occur. When did he say that? About 30 AD. What's a generation? About 40 years. Yet nobody then goes back and says, Jesus was right. Why? Seems all the books were written by then. You say, well, this is just an argument from silence. No, it's not just an argument from silence. Why? Because several of the books are written presupposing the city and the temple are still standing, including John, including even Revelation. And nobody ever says Jesus was right, that the temple was destroyed, the whole city was destroyed. That was a cataclysmic event. You'd have thought somebody would have mentioned it. Imagine you're reading a book about lower Manhattan, And the book talks about the World Trade Towers being built in the 1970s. I lived in New Jersey. I remember them going up. Cranes going further and further up the tower. And the book ends, and there's no talk about them being destroyed by Muslim terrorists on 9-11. When are you going to assume the book was written? It's got to be before 9-11. It wouldn't leave that out. It's too cataclysmic an event. Here's the important point. This is during the age of the eyewitnesses. It's very difficult for historical revisionists to crowd out historical fact why the eyewitnesses are still around because the eyewitnesses could correct any historical revisionists. So we have very early testimony here. But it's one thing to be early. It's another thing to have eyewitness content in there. Well, they claim to be eyewitnesses. Yeah, but did they prove it? I think they did. Why? Because there are historical crosshairs in the text. I'm going to read two verses from an ancient document. As I read these two verses, I want you to ask yourself, does it sound like this writer is making up a story? Are you ready? Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Itrian, Tectonicus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Does it sound like he's making up a story? You don't say this if you're making up a story. Look, an exact date is given, 29 AD. How do we know? Because that's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. All eight people are known from history. I mean, it'd be like somebody today saying it's the second year of the Obama administration. Uh, Joe Biden's the vice president. Uh, Hillary Clinton's the secretary of state. Robert Gates is the secretary of defense. Did he go here? Did Gates go here? He was president at Texas A&M. Robert Gates was. Robert Gates, secretary of defense. Get with it. That's much better. Class of 2013. Hey, they are the championship class here. Those sophomores, they are wise fools, aren't they? All eight people known from history, all were known to live at this exact time. This is not a once upon a time story. If they were making up a myth, they'd say once upon a time there was a man named Jesus. They don't say that. They're putting historical crosshairs in the text. There are plenty of other eyewitness details in the text as well. In fact, in the book of Acts alone, from chapter 13 to chapter 28, there are 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. Roman historian Colin Hemmer went through the book of Acts with a fine-tooth comb and picked out 84 details that have been confirmed by archaeology or other secular means, other writers. 
They're all listed in chapter 10 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Some of these details are very obscure. Who was the obscure ruler in a very small town in the Mediterranean at a particular time? Luke gets it right. What was the strange language and slang spoken there? Luke gets it right. What was the wind direction at a particular part of the Mediterranean, a particular part of the year? Luke gets it right. He even has the depth of the water off Malta right when they're running aground in chapter 27. We took soundings. It was 120 feet. Then we took soundings again. It was 90 feet. Then we cut the anchors and ran aground. He's got the topography underwater of the beach right. And what beach is it? Not St. Paul's Bay in Malta now. It's on the other side of the island. My friend Bob Cornuke, the Christian Indiana Jones, thinks that he's found anchors from a first century Corinthian freighter right where Luke says the two seas came together. These anchors were brought up back in the 1960s by Maltese divers, and now they're in a museum there. But Luke has all these details right. And while he's saying all these details about wind directions, water depths, obscure rulers, Paul is saying, or Luke is saying, that Paul is doing miracles. Now, why would Luke be very accurate, verifiably, with these trivial details about wind directions, water depths, and obscure rulers, but then lie about the big issues like miracles? It doesn't seem to make any sense. You say, well, miracles don't occur. Now, that's an anti-supernatural bias that we just pointed out is illegitimate. Because if there is a God, then miracles are possible. The greatest miracle of all has already occurred. The only question is, have subsequent miracles occurred? It's not just Colin Hemmer who said that Axe is reliable. Even one of the greatest archaeologists of all time who didn't think Axe was reliable when he started on the investigation concluded it was. Sir William Ramsey said, I began with a mind unfavorable to it, Acts, but more recently I found myself into contact with the book of Acts as as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. A.N. Sherwin-White, a Roman historian, put it this way. He said, the... For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. Of course, it's not just Acts. As you know, Luke wrote also the Gospel of Luke, and he has several other of these details in his Gospel. John, the Gospel of John has 59 historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details in his Gospel, all listed in chapter 10 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. One of the... uh, things that my co-author and I did in researching for this book is we looked at many of the names that the New Testament talks about, secular people like Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, and we said, do those people exist outside the New Testament text? Turns out, yes, there are at least 30 people, actually more than 30 people, confirmed by secular sources or archaeology the New Testament has. Here are some of these folks Agrippa, Annas, Augustus, Caiaphas, Felix, all these people are known outside the New Testament documents. Uh, Look, the New Testament documents even get all the Herods right. Imagine keeping that bloodline straight. There's more than this, actually. We didn't do an exhaustive search. And by the way, if you add Jesus to this list, the number comes to 32. Because uh, Jesus, as I mentioned, is mentioned in 10 ancient non-Christian manuscripts Uh, within 150 years of his life. Now you say, how do we know this? Because we have archaeological evidence, for example. 
This is archaeological evidence about Pilate found in the coastal town of Caesarea. Not only do we know that Caiaphas existed, who was the high priest that ordered Jesus killed, we actually have his bones. This is a burial box called an ossuary. The Jews used it from about 20 B.C. to 70 A.D. Because they believed in a bodily resurrection. What they would do is after somebody died, about a year later, they'd exhume the remains and put them in these limestone burial boxes known as ossuaries. There have been hundreds of these found in and around Jerusalem. In 1990, they were going to build a water park and they ran a bulldozer into a cave somewhere and they found a bunch of these ossuaries. This one was particularly ornate, which gave them the hint that maybe somebody important is inside. They looked at the inscription on the side, and the inscription was the inscription that identified the remains as the remains of Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? The high priest who sentenced Jesus to die, the guy who was standing right before Christ. In the movie The Passion, he was the guy with the purple robe. And he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And then Caiaphas said, blasphemy, and he tore his robe. That guy. Inside this ossuary, they found the bones of a 60-year-old man with the remains of his family. So not only do we know Caiaphas existed, we have his bones. Now, you may have heard of some of these other ossuaries out there. Uh, One of them, James Cameron, the director of Avatar and the director of um, the Titanic, sensationalized a few years ago on the Discovery Channel because one of them had Jesus on the side. This is the burial box of Jesus. This was discovered in 1980. The little problem was, is the guy who actually discovered it said it's not the Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, you know how many, he said it has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, I think, was the fifth or seventh most popular name in Palestine at the time. You know how many Jesus ossuaries they found so far? 22. 22. So it's a very popular name. So to say that the burial box that Cameron is trying to sensationalize, that the guy who found it says it's not Jesus of Nazareth, to say that that's the Jesus of Nazareth is like going out into the graveyard and seeing John on the tombstone and saying, it's got to be John the Baptist. (laughs) He knew the Discovery Channel would eat it up because anything that casts doubt on Christianity, they love. But scholars know it has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Contrast this, Caiaphas, there's only one Caiaphas known from history. This one. We also know that crucifixion occurred. The heel bone on the right is an actual heel bone from Jerusalem uh, from the first century. That's the spike going through the heel bone. This is just a mock-up to show you the relative angle of the nail going through the heel bone. So we know crucifixion occurred. There are scores and scores of these types of discoveries. In fact which led U.S. News and World Report, last time I checked, not a Christian mouthpiece, to say this. In extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, corroborating key key points of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the Davidic monarchy, and the life and times of Jesus. Wait, 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 wait. Let's see. That's Old and New Testaments. The stories of patriarchs, that's Abraham. Exodus is Moses. Davidic monarchy is David. Life and times of... That's the whole Bible! That's the point. There are scores and scores of these discoveries. Do they prove the New Testament or the Old Testament's reliable? No, but they corroborate it. They add authentication 
They show that there's a strong historical core to what these documents are telling us. That's eyewitness testimony. Now let's move on to my favorite. Embarrassing testimony. This one clinches it for me because I'm naturally skeptical. But embarrassing testimony. You're probably wondering, what's that about? Well, there's a principle that historians use whenever they're trying to discover whether an ancient writing is telling the truth. It's called the principle of embarrassment, and it goes like this. If there's something embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why? Because you're not going to make yourself look bad, right? You're not going to make up a story or details that make you look bad. Many people will lie to make themselves look good, right? Nobody will lie to make themselves look bad. I mean, life's embarrassing enough. You don't need to make up more embarrassing stuff, right? Okay. Well, it turns out the New Testament documents, the Old Testament documents are as well, but the New Testament documents are filled with embarrassing details about the authors and even about the central character, Jesus. These are not made-up details. Let's take a look at a few of these. Notice that the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying several times. Hey, we didn't know what he was talking about. We didn't know what was happening. Does this sound real flattering that you would, if you were writing this down, you'd say, we just didn't quite get it? No. Also, they are uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus not once but twice. Stay up with me and pray. This is my greatest hour of need. Don't worry, Lord, we'll do it. What do they wind up doing? Twice. And they think this guy's God and they're falling asleep on him. Oh, that's not a good deal. Also, they make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. Who buries Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. Who was he? He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council who sentenced Jesus to die. Now, why would the writers make Joseph look like a good guy while they ran and hid for fear of the Jews? And why would they put Jesus in a Jewish tomb? What would the Jews have said if Jesus was not in their tomb? Jews would have said, he's not in our tomb. Your whole story's false. We're not going to believe you. What if Jesus was in their tomb and hadn't risen from the dead? What would they have done? They'd have gone to the tomb, taken out the body, and said, stop all this nonsense talk about a resurrection. He's dead. Here's the body. Your whole story's false. They didn't do either of those things. What did they do? They said the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. They never denied he was in their tomb. Now, why is that a bad explanation for at least two reasons? Number one, if you're a Roman guard and you fall asleep on duty, what happens to you? You're toast. Number two, if you're a Roman guard and you fall asleep on duty, how do you know what happened? What happened? Uh, We were asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. You were asleep. Yeah, that's right. And how do you know what happened? Stop asking questions and just give us the bribe. Notice, by the way, it's not just Matthew who says this. This is story, this story about the guards falling asleep is in Matthew. But for the first 150 years of the church, this was the continued story that the Jews gave for the empty tomb. They kept saying the disciples came and stole the body. Well, what does that imply? That the tomb was empty. You don't need an explanation for a tomb that wasn't empty. You only need an explanation 
for an empty tomb if the tomb really was empty. And they kept persisting, saying, yeah, the tomb's empty, but here's the explanation. What motivation would the disciples have to steal the body? That doesn't make any sense. To get themselves beaten, tortured, and killed? No. So Jesus was in a Jewish tomb, and the tomb was empty. They are rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. You think they made that up? You think Pete, who, I mean, uh, Mark, who was writing this down, said, hey, this is a good story, Pete. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. (laughs) What do you think Peter would have said? I'm the leader here. Don't have him call me Satan. Have him call you Satan. I'm not making this up. He's their leader. He's supposed to be the first pope. Also, notice, Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a theological issue. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, I told Peter to his face that he was wrong for trying to get the New Testament believers to obey the Old Testament law. Here is Paul rebuking Peter in the Scriptures for being wrong. Again, Peter's supposed to be the first pope. I understand papal infallibility in the Roman Catholic Church didn't come till much later, but why are they making their leader look so bad? And why are they arguing over doctrine if they're making up a new religion? Do you argue over doctrine if you're making up a new religion or you just make up whatever you want? You make up whatever you want. You don't argue. Notice also that most of the letters or a good majority of the letters in the New Testament are all problem letters. There's a problem in the church at Corinth. It's called sexual immorality. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians. There's still a problem in the church at Corinth. They don't think Paul's an apostle, so he writes 2 Corinthians. There's legalism in Galatians, so Paul writes Galatians. There's all sorts of heresies in Coloss, so Paul writes Colossians. There's suffering all over the ancient Christian world, so Peter writes 1 Peter. Now, if you're making up a new religion, do you have these problems? No, you say, everything's just fine. Come join our club. You don't come up with these problems. By the way, that's one reason these writings are still valid today. Because the church still has these problems. We still have sexual immorality. We still have people who deny the authority of the Bible. We still have people caught in legalism. We still have all sorts of heresies. We still have suffering all over the world. That's why these letters are still valid. They're still relevant to us today. But if you're making up a new religion, you don't have these problems. Everything's fine. Also, the New Testament writers are cowards. Their leader again, who's really having a bad day, denies Christ three times. And then the disciples run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away! Stop! They all run away. And who are the brave ones? Ladies, the women! That's right, the women are the brave ones. Yeah, you can give yourselves a hand, ladies. That's right. I am woman, hear me roar. The women are the brave ones? Who wrote this down? Men. Now, what man (laughs) is going to say that he was hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down to discover the empty tomb? Is there any man in here that would say that? You're making it up? I mean, if I were making up this story, here's how I'd write it down. I'd say, let's see... uh, We marched right down there and moved that sissy Roman guard out of the way. Yeah, that sounds good. And then we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. Yes. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. Right? I mean, you wouldn't say you were Mr. Sissy Pants, men. 
why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb if you're making this up, would you? By the way, you would never say the women were the first witnesses either. Why? Why would you never say that in this culture back then? Just because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. If you're trying to make up the resurrection story and convince people it was true, you don't have the women be the first witnesses. You only have the men. But all four gospels say the women were the first witnesses. What's that telling us? They really were. While the sissy pants men ran away. By the way, one lady after a seminar once said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? She said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is a really good point. I mean, men don't talk when they come home from work, do they? Ladies, if you have a man, does your man talk when he comes home from work? I mean, could you see Peter coming home that Resurrection Sunday, comes home from work, his wife's there. Hey, honey, what happened at work today? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? I heard something big happened. What, what, what? I heard a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead, did he? Oh, yeah, yeah, he did. You got anything to eat around here? <laughs> I mean, men don't talk, do they? Also, notice the New Testament depict themselves as doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would rise from the dead, the disciples are doubtful when they hear of his resurrection. Not only are they doubtful when they hear of his resurrection, get this, they're even doubtful after they see him. Look at this verse right here, Matthew 28, 19, or Matthew 28, 17. Does anyone know what happens in Matthew 28, 19, two verses later? This is known as the Great Commission. Jesus is giving them the Great Commission. Go, therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. That's what he's telling them. And while they're there, they're doubting some of them. They're standing there going, hey, you see that guy over there? Yeah. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, come on. It can't be Jesus. No, I'm telling you. That guy over there is Jesus. It can't be. He was dead. I saw him. He was killed. No, it's Jesus. I saw him just the other day. The spear went in his side. Blood and water came out. It can't be Jesus. I'm telling you. That guy is Jesus. It can't be. It is. How do you know? Women told me. They're not putting this in there if they're just making it up, please. Also, there's even embarrassing testimony about Jesus. You always hear, oh, they tried to make up the divinity of Jesus. Oh, really, did they? Then why do they have stuff like this in here? Jesus is considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home, Mark chapter 3. Would have been convenient for them to leave that out, wouldn't it? His family thinks he's nuts at one point. Also, he's deserted by many of his followers. In John chapter 6, he says, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. We can't follow this guy anymore. Hey, if I was there, I'd be one of them too. I'd say, eat your flesh and drink your blood. What are you, a cannibal? I I wouldn't follow him either. He's not believed in by his own brothers. Very embarrassing for a rabbi not to have his own family believe in him. We know James didn't believe in him when he was on earth. Jesus was on earth. But later, as I mentioned earlier, we learn that Jesus is killed as the, basically the leader of the church in Jerusalem 30 years later. How, do we, what, how can we account for this conversion? According to 1 Corinthians 15, the creed I mentioned earlier, Jesus appeared to James. And that was enough convincing to believe that Jesus was God. But when James was on the earth, he didn't believe Jesus. His own brother, his half-brother was God. 
How many people in here, by the way, have a brother? Okay, how many people in here have a brother who thinks he's God? Okay, you don't believe in him either, right? Okay. <laughs> he's thought to be a deceiver. He turns off Jewish believers to the point that they want to stone him. These are believers in him, and he's talking to them, going back and forth, and he gets to a point in the conversation, he says, hey, if you believe in Abraham, you believe in me, because Abraham spoke to me. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. And in fact, he went on to say, I knew Abraham. And they said, you're not even 50 years old, and you knew Abraham? How could you know Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And they immediately picked up stones to stone him. Why? Who is he claiming to be? He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be Yahweh. What's that a quote from before Abraham was born? I am. Where does the I am come from? It comes from Exodus 3.14. You remember when God appeared to Charlton Heston? You remember that? Moses says to God, you want me to tell Pharaoh to let my people go? Who am I going to tell Pharaoh you are? What does God say? What does Yahweh say? Tell Pharaoh, I am sends you. What does I am mean? I am means the self-existent eternal one. Jesus is claiming to be equal with Yahweh. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. They knew what he was claiming. You know, it amazes me today. There are still people out there who say Jesus never claimed to be God. My question is always the same. If Jesus never claimed to be God, why did they kill him? For saying, love your neighbor? Hey, did you hear what he just said? Yeah, I did. (laughs) He just said, love your neighbor. We can't tolerate that. You must die. (laughs) No, the reason that he was killed is because he did claim to be God. See, that's blasphemy to the Jews. That's why they kept picking up stones to stone him. They knew what he was claiming. And if you claim to be God, that's trouble with the Romans. Why? Who was God to the Romans? Caesar. So he's got blasphemy charges by the Jews. He's got sedition charges by the Romans. That's why he was killed. Not for saying, love your neighbor. Also, Jesus is called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance, and he's crucified despite the fact that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. According to Deuteronomy 21, 23. Crucified. Hung on a tree. If you're making up a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang the guy on a tree. Why not? Because, according to the Jews, you're under God's curse. This is not the Messiah they're looking for. But they did hang him on a tree. And he was under God's curse. What curse? The curse we put him under. The curse of sin. Jesus took all of our sins on himself. So he was under God's curse. But if they're making up this Messiah, that's not what you do. You don't put him on a tree. It doesn't fit their paradigm. Now, there's more in the book on that, but let's move on to number four. And then we'll ultimately get to your questions here. Number four, excruciating testimony. We've got early eyewitness, embarrassing, now excruciating testimony. Now... We get the word excruciating from the crucifixion. It means to come out of the cross. And this deals with the fact that many of these eyewitnesses went to die brutal deaths for what they saw. This is actually a painting of Peter being crucified upside down. But before we get to that, let's look at the apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. 
Before the resurrection, these apostles believed in animal sacrifice. Remember, the first believers were Jews. So they thought they had a unique relationship with the God of the universe. They were God's chosen people, and they believed in animal sacrifice. After, they believed in Christ's sacrifice. That's sufficient. We don't need to do this animal sacrifice thing anymore. Before, they believed in a binding law of Moses. Afterwards, they believed that Christ's life fulfilled the binding law of Moses. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, Jesus said. He did. Before, they believed in strict monotheism. Afterwards, they believed in a trinity. One divine essence, but three persons within that divine essence. Yes, I know the trinity is hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New Testament, and they adopted it. Before they believed in the Sabbath, in fact, they thought they could be stoned for disobeying the Sabbath. Afterwards, they said, forget this whole Sabbath observance. In fact, we're just going to worship on Sunday, the day he rose. Before they believed in a conquering Messiah, free us from political oppression. Afterwards, they believed in a sacrificial Messiah. Yes, he'll come again, but he's sacrificial, the first coming. Before he believed in circumcision, Afterwards, he believed in baptism and communion. Now, here's my question. What would have caused these pious Jews who thought they had a unique relationship with the God of the universe, they thought they were God's chosen people, what would cause them to abandon everything on the left side and adopt everything on the right side? What motivation? What would have caused this? The only thing I can think of is an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is something that impacts you so greatly it can change your whole paradigm about life. An example of an impact event might be a heart attack. Before the heart attack, the guy's not eating right, he's not exercising, he's smoking, he's doing all the wrong things. After the heart attack, suddenly he's Jack LaLanne. Now some of you are going, who the heck is Jack LaLanne? Jack LaLanne is an old fitness buff from, from the 50s and 60s. And if he were here today, he'd still kick your fanny. He's in his 90s now. Last time I saw him, he was towing a boat with his teeth across San Francisco Bay. Okay? And he was 93. Mr. Fitness. What changed a heart attack victim? The heart attack. They become, at least in many cases, they turn their lives around 180 degrees. Some impact events will impact you so greatly that you will remember everything about the day it happened, the event. You'll remember what you were doing. You'll remember what other people were doing. You'll remember what you were saying. You'll remember what other people will say, what were saying till the day you die. Very few of you in this room will be able to answer this question, but there are some here that can. Where were you November 22nd, 1963? Anyone? Senior in high school. Yes, ma'am. You were in New Orleans? With your baby, and you were watching a soap opera. Where were you? You were in senior high, and what happened? What, what, did you hear something happen? You were at the Calvacade in Dallas. You were in Dallas. Anyone else? You were in Dallas. Where in Dallas? You were in Richardson. And what were you doing? They sent us home from school. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Graduate school here at A&M. Did you hear that? A&M. All right, good. And you remember what you were doing and what was happening, right? Because what happened on that day? C.S. Lewis died. 
It's true. C.S. Lewis died that same day. That's why nobody ever heard about it. So did Aldous Huxley, the great atheist. But John F. Kennedy was gunned down in Dallas that day. Now, I was only two years old at the time. I was two years old and two days. Yet it's my earliest memory. Because I was standing in the living room and my mother was sitting on an ottoman in the living room in front of the TV, weeping uncontrollably. And I said, Mommy, Mommy, what's the matter? And she said, they killed the president. They killed the president. I can still see her 47 years ago, right there, right now, as if it was right now. Impact event. Where were you when the Challenger exploded? Were any of you alive then? You know what you were doing and where you were? I was in Moffett Field, California, undergoing flight training for the Navy. I walked into a house. I was renting with two pilots. They had the TV on. I said, what's going on? They said, the Challenger just exploded. I looked at the TV. President Reagan's looking up in the sky like this. Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? Do you know where you were? You know what you were doing? Some of you were 10 years old, right? Do you remember? Impact event. I was on the phone. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now, and there was some guy from a church north of Charlotte asking me to come speak to his church. I had my back to the TV. I said, hey, man, have you, you got the TV on? Do you see what's going up there and on in there in New York? Some kind of plane just hit the tower. I said, yeah, I got it on. We are talking, and he, and he said, another plane just hit the other tower. I said, what? I turned around. The second tower is on fire. I said, you just saw that? He said, yeah, I just saw another plane go in there. I said, I'll call you back. Hung up the phone. For some reason that day I had uh, CNN on the Communist News Network. And, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> after the second plane went in the tower, I don't know who it was, but somebody, the, one of the commentators on there said this, said, one has to think there's some sort of navigational error here. I said, you doofus. Navigational error? A beautiful day, two jumbo jets? I don't think so. The next day, I called that guy back. I said, I'm going to come to your church and talk about Islam. This is terrorism. But you remember where you were and what you were doing. Why? Why? Impact event. In fact, I can remember that whole week practically. I can remember every day after that, up through Saturday. Now, 9-11, what's today? The 12th? Today the 12th? Today's the 12th. Okay. 9-11 was over nine years ago. Where were you 9-11-2010? That was 31 days ago. Huh? No impact event that day, right? Do you think a resurrection would have been an impact event? Do you think they would have remembered it if it happened? Do you think they would have remembered everything he was doing, everything they were doing, everything he was saying, everything they were saying till the day they died? If it really happened, a resurrection would have been an impact event. A resurrection would have moved these folks from everything on the left to everything on the right. In fact, here's a good question to ask people. And that is, what did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they have to gain by making this up? What did they have to gain temporally by saying Jesus had risen from the dead? 
Well, they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. Hey, we're going to start a new religion. We are? What's it going to get us? Well, it's going to get us beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. Why haven't we thought about this earlier? What a great idea. No, they wouldn't make this up. You say, oh, these people had an axe to grind. That's why they wrote this down. They had an agenda. Let me ask you a question. Or let me make a statement. They had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. First of all, all writers have an agenda. Nobody writes aimlessly. Okay? The question isn't whether or not they had an agenda. The question is, are they telling the truth? And I see no reason to discount what they're saying here. This is early testimony. This is eyewitness testimony filled with eyewitness details only eyewitnesses would know. They put embarrassing details throughout it, and then they go and die for it. This does not a made-up story. A lot of times I get questions. Well, what ancient non-Christian sources talk about this? That happens to be extra-biblical testimony, which we don't have time to get into tonight. But as I mentioned, there are 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life that tell the same basic story. When you piece together their brief references to Jesus and the apostles, you get the same basic story that you get in here, that his disciples believed he rose from the dead. But if none of those existed, it wouldn't change a thing. Why? Because these folks were the eyewitnesses, and they had everything to lose by saying it really happened, and yet they went ahead and said it anyway and stood by it through all sorts of difficulty. Why would they do that if it didn't happen? Why would they die for a known lie? They had no motive here. They had every motive to say it didn't happen. These were not biased in the favor of making up a new religion. If anything, they'd be biased in saying, don't get that near me, because it's dangerous. Yet they embraced it till the day they died, and died because of it. Now you're saying, wait, 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 wait. Are you, are you trying to tell me that martyrdom proves Christianity? If that's the case, what about Islam? You're not going to tell me that martyrdom proves Islam, because Surah 4, the fourth surah in The Quran says Jesus never died, much less rose from the dead. Yet the New Testament documents say he did die and did rise from the dead. They both can't be true. Law of non-contradiction. If the Quran is right, the New Testament documents are wrong. If the New Testament documents are right, the Quran is wrong on that point. Yet we've got martyrs in Islam. How do you explain that? Well, first of all, can we all agree that martyrs are sincere about what they believe? Correct? I mean, if you're going to die for something, you really believe it. But there's a huge difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. There's a number of differences, but the one I want to zero in on is this. The Muslim martyrs of today are not eyewitnesses to anything. They just have faith they're going to get the 72 virgins or whatever if they fly a plane into a building. But the New Testament martyrs were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. And yet they went and died for it anyway. Which is telling us what? They had proof. Empirical proof themselves, and they wouldn't have gone and died a brutal death for a lie. Yes, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth, but nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether or not it was a lie. 
and yet they went and died for it anyway. You can't get stronger circumstantial proof than that. Now, expected testimony deals with Old Testament prophecy. I don't have time to get into that here, but let me just say that if I only had one prophecy from the Old Testament to show at least the predictive nature of the Old Testament, it would be Isaiah chapter 53. If you've never read Isaiah chapter 53, whether you're an atheist or a Christian or anyone in between in here, go home and read Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, start in verse, uh, chapter 52, verse 9, and take it to the end of 53. And as you read that, ask yourself, who is this about? It is an uncanny prediction of Jesus and his substitutionary atonement. And we know it predates Christ. How do we know? Because the scroll from the Dead Sea, probably the greatest scroll of the Dead Sea scrolls, is the book of Isaiah, 24 feet long, intact. It's in the shrine of the Book Museum in Jerusalem. That scroll we know, dates from 100 B.C. Now, the book of Isaiah is written much earlier than that, but that particular scroll predates Christ by at least 100 years or more. And it has all of Isaiah 53 right in it. There are other verses too, but that's what I would do. I've already mentioned, that's where I'd go, uh, I already mentioned extra biblical testimony, so let's summarize this and wrap it up and take your questions. We have... Early eyewitness, embarrassing, excruciating, expected, and extra-biblical testimony. There's more reasons in the book as well. The overall conclusion here is that the New Testament's historically reliable. It is fact, not fiction. If it says Jesus said it, then Jesus really said it. If it says Jesus did it, then Jesus really did it. So, does truth exist? Yes. It's self-defeating to say it doesn't. Does God exist? The three major arguments plus many others. Are miracles possible? Well, of course, the greatest miracle of all has already occurred. Is the New Testament true? Yes, we've got early eyewitness, embarrassing, excruciating expected an extra-biblical testimony and some other evidence as well. So is the Bible true? Yes, I think, I think it is. Are there any errors in it? No, actually, there may be one error. Not many people know about this error, but there was a hidden camera at Mount Sinai. Check this out. You can bring the lights down for this one. Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15, wait, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. That Moses was a quick thinker, wasn't he? He said, I'm not going back up there. He was mad. That, of course, is Mel Brooks, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, it's true. So what? It's true. What are we going to do with Jesus here? I can't say this any better than C.S. Lewis said. In fact, I can't say anything any better than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said everything well. Here's what he said about who Jesus is. He said, I'm trying to prevent here anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. 
or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So why did Jesus come? Actually, he tells us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom? You're probably thinking, well, I don't need anybody buying me off. What do you mean a ransom? I'm a pretty good person. I can get to God on my own. If you're thinking that, I think that's a relative moral standard that many of us in America think exists. We think there's a relative moral standard out there. From the moral giant Mother Teresa down to the moral midget Hitler. And next to Hitler, we put criminals. Those are bad people, but they're not quite as bad as Hitler. Then next to criminals, we put the immoral people out there. Who are the immoral people? They're our friends and relatives who are not quite as good as we are because we know our picture is right here (laughs) next to Mother Teresa. And then we arbitrarily draw a line right down the middle there. And if we believe in heaven and hell at all, we say these are the bad people. They're going to hell. And me and Mother Teresa, we're going to heaven. I'm here to say that's not the way the line works in reality. The line does not run up and down. The line actually runs across the top. And all of us have fallen short of the standard. Everyone from Hitler to Mother Teresa and everybody in between. And what Christ does is he comes and lives the perfect life and bridges the gap between our iniquity and his perfection. That's why Jesus is the only way to salvation. Because his life was a gift to you. Question is, have you received his gift? And if you have, does anyone know it? Or are you an undercover Christian? If somebody were to drag you out of here right now and try and convict you of being a Christian, like they do in Pakistan, they try and convict people of being a Christian, would you be convicted or acquitted? Now, if I was an evangelist, a preacher, at this point I would say, close your eyes, nobody looking around. I don't do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's stupid. I don't mean to offend anybody in here, but I probably just did. They didn't do that in the New Testament. If you were going to make a commitment to Christ, you did it publicly and you came down front. And when you did that, you put a bullseye on the back of your head. Christianity is free, but it might cost you your life. Secondly, I don't buy into emotionalism. Because if you come to Christ on emotion, you can leave him on emotion. If you're not a Christian in here, don't become a Christian unless you think it's true. Now, are you going to get all your questions answered? No, I don't have all my questions answered. But there's a point where you get enough information to where you've got the preponderance of the evidence saying, yes, this is true. At that point, you put your trust in Christ, even though you may still have doubts, but you don't do it on emotion. Consider the claims. See if they're true. Then decide. If all this is true, what is the purpose of your life? Is it a glorified monopoly game? Let's end where we began. No, your life is not a glorified monopoly game. You know what your life, the purpose of your life is? The purpose of your life is the same purpose for which Harvard University began. Harvard University? That liberal institution up in Taxachusetts? Are you kidding me? No way! Yes! John Harvard was a clergyman. 
Most of our early colleges were founded, private institutions anyway, on Christianity. In fact, this is their charter in 1636. This is hard to find. They've tried to hide it, but you can find it. Here's what their charter was. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly press to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. In other words, the purpose of this life is to know God and to make him known. And when I say know God, I don't just mean intellectually. See, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that has to do with evidence, but belief in has to do with your will. I'll give you an illustration from a personal life. When I met my wife for the first time, before she was my wife, obviously, I had to get evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world never made her my wife. I had to take a step of trust, a step of faith in her to ask her to be my wife. What the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about the second kind. It's not talking about belief that. It's talking about belief in. After you get evidence that Christianity is true, then you put your trust in Christ. That's a step of the will. Now, be honest with yourself in here. Are you just believing in Christ because you had an emotional experience and you don't know that it's really true? Beyond a reasonable doubt. For those of you who aren't Christians, are you resisting Christianity because you don't like the baggage that you think comes with it? Like I'm going to have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or drugs, whatever it is. What's the real reason? I go to too many campuses and I see too much on the internet. A lot of people are just mad. They're just mad at God. They're angry. They're mad at other people who are Christians. I'm not going to be a Christian because that guy wronged me. Really? So you're going to stay out of the kingdom because somebody's a jerk? What kind of sense does that make? Christianity would be easy if it wasn't for all those Christians out there. Yeah, we're all jerks. That's why we need a savior. What's the real reason? I leave the question open to you. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the answer is no, evidence isn't in your way. You are. One other thing about the purpose here. For those who are Christians, this means that everything you do every day has an eternal purpose. It means that your job is to know God and to make him known. Now, you can make him known in ways I can never do. You can make him known to people I'll never meet. And maybe I can do that with people you'll never meet. But you can do things I can't do. Maybe I can do things you can't do. That's why in Christianity we have a body. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to equip the saints to do ministry. Ephesians 4. The pastor's not supposed to do all the ministry. The pastor's supposed to equip you to do the ministry. That's why you are out there as an ambassador for Christ, which means everything you do every day has an eternal purpose, both for time and in eternity. That's exciting on one hand. It's also terrifying on the other, right? But no, your life is not a, divine, it's not a glorified monopoly game. Harvard's early motto was truth for Christ and the church. All right, for more, the book is available. There are DVDs out there. The website, don't forget about that. You can look at our blog and email for 
Emails, we'll send you an email once a month or so to let you know what we're doing and how we're doing it and where we're going to be. The blog is up there. You can comment and look at articles up there. Don't forget radio and don't forget TV as well. Now, with that said, we can go right to questions, and I think we have a handheld mic. And just like last night, uh, no one likes to ask the first question, so we'll move right on to the second question. (sighs) Second question, ladies and gentlemen. Now, don't be two percenters and bolt out of here. Okay. Oh, look at this. We're out of here. How many are going to breakaway? All right. How many from the class of 2013 are going to breakaway? All right. Yeah, that's right, baby. All right. Why don't we give 2010 a chance again? 2010? Man, that's lame. 2011. Oh, better. 2014? Is 2014 the wave? Is that what that is? 2014 is the wave. Maybe you guys can bring the lights up. And who has the the microphone? Does someone have the microphone? Oh, in the back there? I can't see back there. If you could turn the lights up a little bit on the audience. Who's that in the back? Is that you, Sam? What? Is that you, Sam? No. No? Okay. There was a guy sitting back there by the name of Sam last night. But I can't see back there. Go ahead, sir. Well, it, it concerns what you said about how people, the, if you're making up a religion, you're not going to make your representatives of the religion look fallible because if you want people to believe, you want to make them look good. But in our day and age, though, some people inherently distrust something that makes people seem too perfect and too infallible. So sometimes people make things up, do introduce fallibility into them because that makes them look more realistic, more believable, and that makes it look like those are people that they can identify with. So are you saying that the New Testament writers did all this and then went to their deaths just to make it look real? No, but... uh... But uh, I was just wondering what you would say if anyone else said that. I believe everything you say. <laughs> but uh, also good to note that that's a modern thing in yeah. writing. That if you look at other writings of that time period, they didn't do that same idea. They didn't make their heroes purposely fallible. That's a modern thing. Yeah, I think that's true, and in fact, uh, what they tended to do with heroes is they tended to deify them. Uh, They tended to make them uh, beyond what a normal human being would be. But, you know, in a certain sense, I could agree with you. If this was an isolated piece of evidence, none of this evidence necessarily is completely persuasive alone, but when you put it all together, when you've got early eyewitness, embarrassing and excruciating, then suddenly you go, it all fits together. It's not an isolated detail. All right? Good question. Anyone else? Just raise your hand high if you would. Oh, you can stay right back there. That's easy. Yes, ma'am. I was just curious as to how you justify um, the problem of evil as far as suffering goes without relying on free will and looking at more natural events or occurrences. Okay, excellent question. Um, I'll deal with the natural events here in just a minute, but let me just show you a one minute and 46 second video that I think explains evil better than I can do it in that same period of time. 
Now, this is known as the kinetic video, which means there's no video footage in it. It's all done computer graphic-wise. There is a lot going on, so you really have to pay attention. Are you guys ready? The video is called Is God Good? And you can bring the lights down. Check this out. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing. But if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. That video you can see again, because I know some of you might want to see it again, because there's a lot going on. You can see it again on our website, crossexamined.org. Go to the blog, look for Is God Good? Okay, that was done by a graduate of our seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary. He's obviously a graphic artist. And in fact, we're going to raise some money to do a bunch more of those because when you have a question like that and something can answer a question in a very short period of time, we'll want you to have the ability to take a link and just send it to your friends. So, hey, watch this little video here. So if you want to see more of that, you can. Now, your question had to do with natural evil. And in the Christian worldview, we do not separate natural evil and human free choice. Where'd the lady go? She was back there somewhere. Oh, I'm sorry. You're there now. Okay. <laughs> I was looking back there. I didn't see you anymore. Um, so, uh, the, according to Christian theology, the entire creation is tainted by human free choice. And that evil does occur, but evil will one day be quarantined. This is obviously not the end of the story. Yes, evil things happen on this earth, but if God exists, then these evil things can lead ultimately to good, and certainly people who die in a disaster um, can be redeemed right then and there. In fact, God really doesn't kill anybody. He simply moves them from one uh, form of life to another form of life. So this is not the end of the story. There are terrible things that happen, of course, but number one, we wouldn't know what terrible was unless we knew what good was. And number two, because of free will, the entire creation is, is, is under bondage to decay. Evil things do occur, but since God is God, he can redeem those in the end. Does that make sense? 
Good question. Uh, over here, whoever you get to there, Matt, doesn't matter. I have a question uh, regarding natural disaster and, and evil and, and what you just said about God moving uh, from one life to the next. Right. Uh, I have a family member who we did not have the, uh, the time to reach that member. Uh-huh. And that family member passed in a natural disaster. Uh-huh. Can you just give me some insight as to what your thoughts are in terms of that? Because that was a, you know, there was, there was no good come out of that for that particular person. Now, other family members, yes, reached, right. brought, brought forth. So, you know, I'm okay with it because I'm a believer, but how can I reach other family members who say, well, he died and, and was not reached, and so what if 50 other people were reached. I mean, that's, that's their... Sure. I, yeah, I understand the question. Well, first of all, you don't know whether or not he was ultimately reached at the end. So you don't know if, in fact, if, where he is. But I'll point out, secondly, that since God is just, nobody's going to go to heaven who should go to hell, and no one's going to go to hell who should go to heaven. So God, people's free choices are respected. If he, doesn't, if he didn't want, or whoever it was, didn't want God now then he or she is not going to want God in eternity, and God is going to respect that choice. So ultimately, it it can work for good and will work for good if, in fact, God does exist. Um, And it's if that person hadn't died, um, would that person later have accepted Christ? Well, who knows? But God knows, right? God knows what would have happened. God knows all possible contingencies. Yeah. There's, there's a billion roads you can choose, and he knows every one of them. You choose the road. You choose the road, and God respects your choice. That's God right. is not going to force anybody into heaven against their will, and God's not going to force anybody into hell against their will. So if I'm understanding you right, because he saw the billion choices that Joe Bob could have made, by him dying in that natural disaster did not it, it didn't change the outcome. Is that what you're basically saying? Well, God, only God knows at this point. If he right. died an unbeliever and didn't want God, then he's separated from God. And he, if okay. he died in last minute, became a believer because he wanted God, then he's with God. God is not going to force anybody into heaven or hell against their will. That would be unloving of him. But he would have had to make that choice right before he died? Is that Well, the, the scriptures seem to indicate that it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. It doesn't appear like there's another chance on the other side. And maybe the reason for that is, is because if you don't want him here, you're not going to want him there. Okay. I, I don't want to take up. I'm, I need more clarification and you're doing fine. It's, it's just me. All right, well, we can to... talk at the book table later. Sure. That's fine. There's people in front of you and behind you, Matt. It doesn't matter which way you go. Just real quick. What, I guess maybe you said something yesterday, but what is, like, your story? Like, can you do, like, a quick kind of, like, you mentioned that you were in the Air Force, and now you're doing this. Oh, like, Is there, uh, like, a quick version to that? Well, I was born in, no. Um, I was brought up in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic high school. I lived in New Jersey, and it's law that you have to be a Catholic if you live in New Jersey. I don't know if you know that. Uh, I went off to college, University of Rochester, I always believed in God, but I didn't know who Jesus was. I went to flight school in Pensacola, Florida, met a guy who was the son of a Methodist minister. He took me to a Baptist service, and I thought it was cool because I actually learned something. Um, And uh, then we went out to California. We roomed together. 
I started reading Josh McDowell books, and I ultimately came to faith through apologetics. I spent eight years in the Navy from 1984 to 1992. I was a tactical coordinator aboard a P-3 Orion, which went out and had submarines and did surface surveillance. In my last three years of the Navy, I was an ROTC instructor at George Washington University, and after that, we moved to Charlotte to attend Southern Evangelical Seminary under Norman Geisler, who is, was probably at that point the Michael Jordan of apologetics. He probably still is. And... Uh, I didn't say Tiger Woods, notice that. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, he and I started doing seminars together. We wrote a couple of books together. And so I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary to really learn more about apologetics. So that's kind of the short story there. Thank you. Uh, right here. Then we can come up here. And then there's a, someone in the back. We'll go back there too. Um, yes, sir. This is one um, my brother, who I doubt is here, but um, struggles with all of this. And the one question I've heard from a lot of people is, why do we not see amputees healed? I think I know what you're going to say with this, but that is like in the Western civilization over here, you don't have scientific documentation of people praying, laying hands, and seeing amputee healed. Okay, well, does that mean God doesn't exist? No, no. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't know then. Maybe God doesn't heal that way right now. I know there was one healed in the New Testament like that. His name was Malchus, had his ear cut off. And Jesus put it back on. So and that's the whole question of what kind of miracles occur today, if any. That's a whole other topic. Of course, God can do a miracle whenever he wants to. If he wants to heal an amputee, he will. Uh, maybe he doesn't because it, at least we haven't seen, I haven't seen one. That doesn't mean it doesn't occur, but I haven't seen one. There's a number of reasons he might not do it. If miracles are used to confirm a message from God, well, there's no new message. You don't need a new message. You don't need a new miracle. If you notice, though, Jesus' miracles are in basically three categories. And it's quite interesting if you look at the three categories for Jesus' miracles. And for those of you who have an NIV study Bible, which stands for the um, nearly inspired version, study Bible, they actually break these out in here. Jesus had nature miracles. He had miracles uh, over or healing miracles. He had nature miracles. And he had raising the dead miracles. Those are the three basic categories. Healing, nature miracles, like walking on water, calming the storm. And then he had rising, raising the dead. Now, why are they in those three categories? If you notice... Jesus' miracles are never done for entertainment. They're never like tricks, you know. Make a rabbit disappear. None of that nonsense. The miracles are to show that the Messiah is the one who can restore things to the way they should be. And so ultimately we'll all be restored to the way we should be. If we're maimed or deformed, ultimately we'll be restored to the way we should be. Our bodies will be ultimately glorified and never run down. So Jesus has power over healing. He has power over nature. Nature, natural disasters will never affect us anymore. And he also has power over the dead, which means we'll live forever. Uh, someone up here, and then we can go over to Zach. And there's someone in the back, too, who's had their hand up on the aisle. And there's a guy in the green there, too. Yes, sir, go ahead. How old is the world?
Uh, I can tell you that the world is older than 48 years. <laughs> That's as far back as I go. Uh, we covered this last night. I don't want to get into it again, but after, we'll talk about it. There's, I don't know how old it is. It could be old. It could be young. Okay. Good question. But we covered it last night, so I don't want to. Zach. So the... The New Testament accounts, most people date them, the Gospels between 30 and 50 A.D., or no, 30 to some people as high as 80. Um, what would you say about that? And then also, what would you say about um, arguments about uh, the Gospels being written like 20, 30, 40 years after the account? Like, um, Some people say there's like a Q source in between mm-hmm. that they reference to. Yeah. Do you know about that? Right, yeah. Q is from a German word, which means source. And the thought is, is there's a source out there that the gospel writers all used as a reference. Q has never been found. There's never, a, never been a manuscript, Q manuscript, whatever it is. Um, the real experts on the dating of the New Testament documents are guys like Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas. Uh, and uh, I ask them, I say, I know a lot of skeptical scholars seem to date the Gospels after 70 A.D., 80, 90, 100. I say, what, by what criteria, what evidence do they have that they're that late? You know what their answer is? They don't have any evidence. They just date them there because it fits into their worldview. They know if the Gospels are earlier, they're in trouble because they're during the lives of the eyewitnesses. So it's simply an anti-supernatural bias which causes them to date the Gospels late. I think the internal and external evidence, as we pointed out here, points to an early date for all those documents and an even earlier date for the content, like the creeds. It would be like you today. Suppose you wanted to write a story about the 1984 presidential election and you interviewed eyewitnesses of it. Even though you're writing the document today, the data comes from 26 or so years ago, right? By eyewitnesses. So you've got eyewitness testimony in a document that you write 26 years later. The testimony is the important thing, not when you write it. Uh, So there's a lot of early testimony in the documents. And I argue, as you saw here, that most, if not all, the documents are written prior to 70 70 AD anyway. And how do you know exactly how they date documents, how historians do that, what methods they use? Well, a lot of times they can date them. Sometimes scrolls are found with coins, and they can date them that way. Sometimes it's, they know when the writing style changed, and so they, they know that. They know what kind of, of uh, material the, the manuscripts were put on. Uh, they know if there's anachronisms in there that it... You know, it, it can't be, a, it's a forgery if there are anachronisms in there. So they use all sorts of methods like that to figure it out. Somebody back there in the green, and then there's somebody all the way in the back there with their hand up. Uh, I have two questions about yes, the New Testament. About um, what? The New Testament. Yes. The first one is, how do you explain the absence of the divine birth in some of the Gospels when, according to your logic, um, the Gospel writers would not have left that out when it's so central to Christian myth? Okay, let's deal with that one first. Okay. Uh, None of the Gospels have all the truth. They're simply different accounts uh, from different perspectives. 
And just like uh, different newspaper stories are not going to be, or they're not going to have the same uh, the same facts in every newspaper story. So that could just be explained by the fact that you've got different people writing down different accounts. it might be that that wasn't part of their purpose. It was for Matthew. Why? Because Matthew's writing to the Jews. So Matthew records it because he's writing to the Jews, and the Jews are interested in the Old Testament. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. And so he's pulling out verses from the Old Testament saying this typifies Jesus. One of them, of course, is the uh, virgin birth prophecy, which he talks about. Another is Micah 5.2, that he'll be born in Bethlehem. So he's, he knows that the Jews are students of the Old Testament, so he includes that kind of thing because that's his audience. But someone like Mark, he doesn't include that because that's not his audience. Okay, and my second question is, um, how do you explain contradicting stories in the New Testament, such as the conflicting accounts of when Mary Magdalene found uh, the empty tomb of Jesus? What would be the conflict the conflicting story. Can you give me the detail? Uh, every single gospel lists different people finding mm-hmm. the tomb. All mm-hmm. of them include Mary Magdalene, but then mm-hmm. one says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Uh, mm-hmm. One other gospel says Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, and mm-hmm. then uh, they name another woman. I'm not sure what her name is. And then the fourth gospel mentions um, the, the, first, the two Marys and then other women. Okay. Yeah, but that doesn't, that's not necessarily contradictory. Again, they're coming from different writers who are emphasizing the people they want to emphasize. None of them say only these people went. Okay. Uh, there's, there's one gospel that says only Mary Magdalene was there. And she, and she well, left. was it the same period of time? Were they talking about the exact same hour, the exact same minute? I believe so. I'm not sure. There's no, there's no way to say that. How do you know they're talking about the exact same hour, the exact same minute? You know, a lot of times I do a presentation with my co-author, Dr. Norman Geisler, and if a newspaper reporter came in here and said... Um, that Dr. Norman Geiser and Dr. Frank Turk gave a presentation, that would be true. If another one came in here and just saw me up here and said Dr. Frank Turk came and gave a presentation, that would be true too. It wouldn't be contradictory. They'd actually be complimentary. You see, any news or any judge who hears testimony, word-for-word testimony, from two different eyewitnesses is going to say what? Collusion. These people got together because no two eyewitnesses see everything exactly the same way. Oh, they'll have the same basic point, there was a resurrection, but they may differ on who got to the tomb first or what angel was there or the minor details. The main point is he rose from the dead. The eyewitness details are always a little bit varied because you get different perspectives from different people. Uh, so I don't see any problem with any of that. Now, we do have a new entry on our blog, which is quite interesting, that you might want to check out. Uh, it has to do with this very question, are there contradictions in the New Testament? And one of, our, one of our instructors wrote a very long entry, which is actually quite humorous, because it talks about a southwest plane crash and how from four or five different sources, you get different details about the same crash. And if you were to take this skeptical view of the particular, of each of these particular uh, news Accounts, you'd say they were all false, but none of them were false. They were all true, just adding or just emphasizing different details. So take a look at that. It's on the blog. Oh, by the way, one other, one other point on that. 
Let's say that you could find a contradiction in the New Testament documents somewhere. Let's say one said there was only one angel at the tomb, only one, and the other said, no, there were two. It doesn't say that, but let's suppose you could. Does that mean the resurrection didn't occur? It may be a problem for biblical inerrancy. It's not a problem for the eyewitness documents. You can have, just like in this southwest plane crash, you can have what appear to be conflicting details about the crash and still know there was a plane crash. So you can have conflicting minor details about a resurrection event and still know there was a resurrection. That doesn't disprove the overall story. It may have an impact on biblical inerrancy, but it doesn't have an impact on the truth of Christianity. Good question. In the back, the, back there, someone's had their hand up for a while. Um, I guess I have a question kind of in regards to the video. Um, if God made each person who they are yes. and determines their environments and their personalities, and this determines how we make choices, is it really free will? Okay, that's a good question. Well, I don't think that we are, he's determined our personality so we don't have free will. Uh, We may have certain inclinations, but we still have free will. And some of our personality, uh, some will say, is developed by how we're brought up. So there are different environmental and genetic components that go into our being that may affect our decision making um, but that wouldn't mean we don't have some free will to make a choice does that make sense who else there's someone over here on this side and then just to keep you running Matt we'll have to come all the way down here Uh, I guess this kind of goes back to her question mm-hmm. about uh, you said God doesn't force anyone into heaven or he doesn't force them to believe in him. But right. what are your thoughts on predestination as far as I know there are verses that reference that in the Bible? We're not predestined to talk about that here tonight. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, that's a can of worms we could open up and take forever. I'll give you my very short treatise on it, realizing it's not adequate to cover the whole topic. Okay. Uh, when God elected to create this universe as opposed to any other universe, he thereby elected the outcome. Ephesians 1 talks about God electing us before the foundation of the world, right? But that does not mean that we don't have free will. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, And this, by the way, is sometimes called middle knowledge. If you want more on this, you can go to William Lane Craig's website because he talks about this quite a bit, reasonablefaith.org, and you can... We're linked to him, so you can go to our website, too. Uh, this is not his illustration. This is mine. Let's suppose you love football. Do you like football? Okay. Do you like Texas A&M? Man, was that weak. How about University of Texas? Uh, all right. Well, one guy does. One guy likes it right here. He's sitting right down front. <laughs> Who was that, huh? Let's suppose you got NFL ticket. You like a whole bunch of teams. And uh, you're away one Sunday, and you've got a bunch of DVRs in your house, and you, you record all the games. And on your way home, in the car, you hear the radio, you hear all the scores on the radio, and you go, oh, man, I didn't want to know what the score was. But you know all the scores now. And so then you go home, and let's say you elect to watch the Giants and the Cowboys. Okay? Let's just say you elect it. And you already know that the Giants are going to win, because they always do. I am from New Jersey. 
one playoff game since 1996, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Anyway, so you already know the Giants are going to win. But as you watch the game, you know the outcome. Does that mean because you know the outcome, does that mean that you are causing the players to do what they're doing on the field? No, right? They're still freely doing what they're doing, even though you know the outcome. In the same way, when God elected to create this universe, he knew the outcome, but yet we're still freely deciding whether we choose him or not. So, yes, God elects because he elects to create this universe, but yes, we still have free will as well. Remember, God is outside of time. He's not caught in time like we are. He knows the end from the beginning. So we are chosen but free. And in fact, my co-author, Dr. Norman Geister, has a book by that same title. So if you really want to delve into the Calvinism issue, I recommend you get that book, Chosen But Free. Where's the microphone now? And I think you are predestined to get it. Who has the microphone? Oh, here comes Matt. He's coming. Stand by. Yeah, my question goes back to the video as well, um, where it compares having evil in the world and free will to a square circle, or the absence of evil with free will to the idea of a square circle. Yeah. Um, How do you use that to justify the concept that one day there will be a heaven if it's actually not logical? What's not logical? To To not have evil but yet retain free will. Oh, no, it's possible to have free will and no evil. Or suffering or... But it's not possible to have love unless you have free will. So there would still be suffering and evil in heaven? No, there could be the situation, what many Christian theologians say, is once you've made your choice here and you see God for who he is, see means you understand God for who he is, then you will no longer want to rebel. You'll still have free will, but you'll be so consumed by God that your, this is called the beatific vision in theology, that your free will is fixed on God. So you'll no longer have the sin nature. You won't want to do evil, even though you still have free will. You can love God, you'll have free will, and you won't want to sin, so you won't. Good question. Uh, there's been some folks up here that have been waiting, so. Um, do you necessarily believe in the Big Bang, or like, are you just showing that it proves creationism? Because it says, like, God made the world in six days. It was a Big Bang. We went through this last night on Age uh, of the Earth. It might be young. It might be old. I don't really know, and you have to make assumptions you can't prove. I don't believe in the Big Bang theory. The Big Bang Theory is a naturalistic theory which says the universe exploded into being out of nothing, but we don't know how. I believe in the evidence for the Big Bang that, yes, there was the universe is expanding. Yes, there's a radiation afterglow. Yet, there are very fine temperature variations. And yet, uh, yes, Einstein's theory of general relativity shows that there was an absolute beginning to space, matter, and time, which, oh, by the way, the Bible says in several places time had a beginning. I believe in all that. And I say that it points back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, whether that happened billions of years ago or thousands of years ago, that's up for debate within Christianity. And you have to make assumptions you can't prove, which we went through last time. It may, it may be it's 10,000 years old. It may be it's, 10, it's 13.8 billion years old. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because God is the creator whether it's 10,000 years ago or 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, also, uh, do you 
believe that Jesus like went to hell when he died like for the three days before he rose? No, you're or talking about that verse in First Peter, which is very controversial. No, I don't think he went to hell. Okay, some say he did. That's part of the one of the creeds, but no. Over here, just just pass it right on down. Hello, uh, I have two questions. Yes, sir. Um, one, um, how would you go about doing um, like a study on a book of the Bible? How would you personally, like, how would you, like, if you were going to study Romans, uh-huh. like, how would you go about that? Well, first thing you got to figure out is who wrote it, who they wrote it to, when they wrote it, what was the purpose of them writing. In other words, get the whole context in there right. and then move forward from there. Read the book yourself, read some historical background to it, maybe get some good commentaries and see, see what other people who are further down the road than you are theologically have said about it and just consider what they say. And then, of course, if you know the original language, that helps too. But of course, in, in, and I'm not an expert in the Greek. I have had some Greek, but my Greek teacher said that reading the Bible in Greek is like the difference between watching TV in color and black and white. For you, it would be HD and not HD, right? You still know everything that's going on. If you're watching a football game in HD, it's better, but you can still see it if it's not HD. You still know the score. You still know what happened, right? So there's just some flavoring that you get from the original language. Okay, and my other question was, um, I have or had a sister um, who uh, was mentally handicapped severely for 20 years and passed away in May. Who was what? I'm sorry? Uh, mentally handicapped uh-huh. for 20 years. Yes. Um, and I was wondering how, like as a Christian, how do I go about, um, I understand like how, how to love on someone, but right. how do you go about... Um, like sharing the gospel or sharing Jesus with someone who um, I don't see understanding what I'm saying to her? Well, that's a great question. I think maybe she sees your love for her and you're an ambassador for Christ, so she, she can see how you love her that, that demonstrates God. Now, most theologians will say, look, God is not going to hold anybody accountable who isn't accountable. You've got to reach the age of accountability, right? So if she was not at the age of accountability, just like babies then, you know, God is not going to hold them accountable for not accepting him. She doesn't know who he is. She was, she was um, like, normal until she was, like, six or seven years old. Uh-huh. Um, and then, like, when she was six and a half is when she started to, um, like, within, a, like, half a year to a year span, like, completely backtracked. Hmm. So she was, quote, unquote, normal mm-hmm. um, till she was about six, six and a half. Well, only God knows where she was. Right. Uh, I, I would say probably the age of accountability is not that young. I think for most people today, the age of accountability is 38. <laughs> okay? We live in an infant, and not, not this audience in here, but we, we live in an adolescent society where some of, some of our social um, observers are saying adolescence now goes to age 30. I'm like, oh, please, grow up. But God knows. And one of the things I think that, um, you know, there was a lady, I was in Michigan uh, last week, and a lady brought her daughter who has been, she wasn't Down syndrome, but she had a, she said, her, her mother said that th- this is a, the only known case. It's like a Down syndrome condition. And she was here, uh, she had been in that state for 27 years, and uh, this daughter actually helped in a certain way lead her mother to Christ and she said that 
I've learned so much from this woman and I learned a lot more about myself. And in fact, if you think about it, there's only certain things you can learn through difficulty. You can't learn compassion unless someone's suffering. You can't learn patience unless you have to demonstrate it. You can't learn to care for people unless somebody's in need. So difficulty actually can teach us virtues that we can only learn through difficulty. Uh, And for me, I know that uh, Down syndrome children, they're always saying, well, these Down syndrome children are the ones that have something wrong with them. No, I think we have something wrong with us. Every Down syndrome kid I know is happy and just full of life. I think we're the ones that have the trouble. Uh, My grandmother, the last four years of her life was in very bad shape, bedridden a, a good portion of that, and her daughter, my aunt, had never really grown up. She was almost 40 years old. And for those last four years, my aunt, her daughter, took care of her every day and grew more in those four years than she did in the previous 40. Everyone was saying, well, why didn't God take Grandma earlier? Grandma was working on Aunt Florence. And Aunt Florence never would have grown up without Grandma. And we can see that. There are a lot of times you can't see the good that comes out of it. But it might come out of it because there could be a series of decisions and actions that occur that like a domino, series of dominoes throughout history. And it might be a thousand years from now that we see the ultimate good that comes out of a bad event. Anybody else? Toward the back there, there's some folks. What, what is your belief on uh, spiritual gifts and uh, baptism of the Spirit as far as in Acts? And then uh, Paul writes th- about it throughout the New Testament. My spiritual gift is sleeping. <laughs> and I'm pretty good at it. Uh, I don't really have strong feelings on that either way. Um, I'm not into uh, drawing strong distinctions between Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals. I've got Pentecostal friends who have studied that great, a great deal and think it's legitimate and others who say they don't. I haven't drawn a firm conclusion on it. If God wants to manifest those signs now, he can. I don't know if they're occurring or not. It's not really my field. But it's certainly possible. It certainly happened in Acts, didn't it? In the back, or someone right behind, but she had her hand up first in the back there. Um, earlier you mentioned about free will and heaven and how we'll want to follow like God's will. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of made me wonder about Satan. He mm-hmm. was an angel. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Like, what does the Bible say about Satan? Well, no, not necessarily that, but just like how you mentioned that we'll want to follow his will when, when, when we're in heaven, but uh-huh. Satan went against God's will and wanted to be his own God. So there's still a chance that someone could reject his will in heaven. Right, yeah, but Satan never had the the body like we have now. Satan is a spiritual being. And one of the, I guess, uh, this is speculation on the part of most theologians, but why can't angels or demons be redeemed? Maybe because they made their choice seeing God for who he was and turned away, at least the demons did. Um, Angels obviously stayed with God. 
Uh, so in a certain sense, we're, we're a different kind of creation than demons and angels are. So apparently when we're here on this earth, that's our opportunity to make a choice and we can be redeemed, but angels and demons can't. So why is that so? We're speculating when we say that, but the why is is because they really saw God for who he is and they chose against him, the demons did. But no, I, I don't think by definition, I don't think being in heaven while you'll have free will, I don't think you'll be able to sin. Satan obviously is not in heaven. <laughs> right down here. By the way, those of you who are hanging out are going to be treated to three minutes of laughter, so don't, don't go away yet. Uh, my question is about Catholicism. Um, what do you have to say about Catholicism using books uh, that were not placed in the Bible for their church doctrine and using that as a supplement to the Bible? Well, one of the reasons I'm not a Roman Catholic is because I think they have added some books to the Old Testament at the Council of Trent in 1546 in response to Luther. Uh, they said that praying for the dead, Luther said, Why are you doing, what are you praying for the dead? That's not in the Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church, sure it is. It's in 2 Maccabees and Romans. I mean, and uh, Luther said, well, 2 Maccabees isn't in the Bible. And they basically later said, it is now. So they added books to the Old Testament that the Jews never accepted as Old Testament books, as inspired. So that's one reason I'm not a Roman Catholic. Uh, but let me say one other thing about the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Conservative Protestants have more in common with conservative Catholics than conservative Protestants have in common with liberal Protestants. Did you hear what I just said? That may seem counterintuitive. But liberal Protestants hardly even believe in God. It's like a hymn-singing rotary club. And they're doing everything opposite to what God wants them to do. At least Roman Catholics agree on the essentials of the faith. They agree that they agree on the deity of Christ. They agree on the substitutionary atonement. They agree that Christ is going to come again. They agree on the virgin birth. They agree on all these things. They do add verses to the Bible or add some books to the Old Testament, the same New Testament. They agree on the inerrancy of the Bible. Conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants have more in agreement than conservative Protestants with liberal Protestants. Over here. Matt's coming. That's Matt Morton, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! Who, by the way, did a great job promoting this whole thing, so thank Matt and his team for doing that. Um, I had two questions. One, they don't relate to each other, but mm -hmm. the first question was, you were talking about free will, but what if there was, a, like, say, a hypothetical person and they had no will? Like, what if they had no education about God, and had, um, but they were all good? Like, of course, like, everyone sins, but what if they were out to do good and whatnot, but they had no knowledge of God? Like, where would that person go? I don't think such a person exists because I think every person knows God exists. You always hear, what about the guy in the jungle who's never heard of God? No such person. Everybody knows there's a creator God. Why? Because of creation. Everyone knows there's a moral creator God. Why? Because of conscience. What they don't know is Christ. That's our job. In fact, if you look at the book of Romans, the first, chapter 1, creation. Chapter 2, conscience. Chapter 3, Christ. Everyone has the first two. 
It's the third that's our job to get people the word of Christ. Now, this is called natural revelation, creation and conscience. And the illustration goes like this. The Bible seems to, it's not an illustration, the Bible seems to indicate that if you take a step toward natural revelation, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that God will give you the information you need to be saved. He'll get you Christ, whether it's through you, whether it's through a missionary, whether it's through a TV program, whether Jesus appears to you personally, like we get many reports of Muslims saying this. Somehow you're going to get the evidence or you're going to get the gospel. But... If you know about natural revelation, and everybody does, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, some people don't want God, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go their own way. If you walk away from natural revelation, God obviously is in no uh, obligation to get you more revelation. You don't want what light he's shown you. You're not going to want more light. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Next. And my second question is, is there any way that you could support evolution and um also believe in Adam and Eve because it doesn't really make sense to me because you say that um, God, like, I guess, helped with the Big Bang, if that's what you are saying yesterday. And um, from there, like, we grew from, like, the like amoeba and whatnot. But how does that coincide with Adam and Eve? Because if you just, like, snap your fingers and Adam and Eve is there, that kind of doesn't make sense with, like, the time sequence and whatnot. That doesn't... Well, I don't think that we came from the amoeba to... Uh, human beings by natural selection. You know what the best evidence that evolutionists say we have? It's a common genetic code. You have DNA, I have DNA. Obviously, this is the work of a common ancestor, or it's evidence for a common ancestor. But does a common genetic code necessarily point to a common ancestor? Could it just as easily point to a common creator? Well, of course. At best, the evidence is a wash that you have a common genetic code. I think Adam and Eve were created instantaneously. And in fact, if you look at the animal world, there's something called the Cambrian explosion. The Cambrian explosion, according to old earth dating, occurred about 550 million years ago. All major animal types or body types, with the exception of a very few, all the phyla were created, it appears, instantaneously. They came into existence immediately. This is absolutely the antithesis of Darwinism. In fact, we have fewer body plans today than we had 550 million years ago. And to show you this, let me just show you a very, very quick video because this this will show you what I mean. Here's what Stephen Jay Gould said. I won't read his quote, but he basically says, yeah, 570 million years ago, and this guy's an evolutionist, everything exploded into being. Here's a video. But late in the Precambrian, they disappeared from the Earth. Then long after their extinction, everything changed in a geological instant. In a spectacular burst of creativity, the basic blueprints for most of the animal kingdom exploded into being. And for the first time, biologically complex structures like compound eyes, spinal cords, articulated limbs and skeletons appeared on Earth. To understand the speed of the Cambrian explosion, imagine the history of life compressed into a single day. 
If we imagine the whole history of life on Earth taking place in one 24-hour period, the current uh, standard estimates for the origin of life put it at about 3.8 billion years ago, let's say 4 billion. So if we start the clock then, our 24-hour clock, six hours, nothing but these simple single-celled organisms appear, the same sort that we saw in the beginning. 12 hours, same thing. 18 hours, same thing. Three-quarters of the day has passed, and all we have are these simple single-celled organisms. Then at about the 21st hour, in the space of about two minutes, boom, most of the major animal forms appear in the form that they currently have in the present. And many of them persist to the present, and we have them with us today. Less than two minutes out of a 24-hour period. That's how sudden the Cambrian explosion was. Now, human beings came much later, but all basic body plans, including vertebrae body plans, occurred at that point. Now, Gould goes on to say that the fossil record does not support gradualism. Again, this guy is an evolutionist, or was. He said that there's no directional change when they appear on Earth. They appear suddenly, and then they leave suddenly. One other very short video which illustrates this very well. Imagine a graph, if you will, of the appearance over time of phyla. In Darwin's picture, you'd have one, then two, then four, perhaps, then eight, a gradually increasing curve of the number of phyla growing over time. What you actually have in the fossil record is a sudden spike in the number of phyla that appear during the Cambrian, and then a few that trickle in uh, across the rest of geologic time. This kind of discontinuity is radically at odds with the Darwinian picture of the history of life. The pattern we see is the major body plans present at the beginning, and that the organisms that we know today fall into one or another of those major body plans. They don't gradually increase over time. That video, by the way, you can get. It's about 70 minutes long, the whole thing. It's called Darwin's Dilemma. It's brand new. It's only been out about a year. And so that explains a lot of uh, what really happened in the past, at least from the evidence, and it does not line up with this gradualism called Darwinism. You still have the microphone, ma'am, or someone else have it now? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You kind of touched on uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian. Right. I just wanted to know what you thought about kind of like how brief he mentioned Jesus in most of his historical work. Yes, Jesus or Josephus mentions uh, Jesus twice, once in about a paragraph and then once in a passing reference when he mentions James, who his half-brother being killed as a martyr. Uh, The first reference is about a paragraph long, And some say that has been interpolated by Christians. In other words, Christians have inserted some material in there. And that's probably true. However, uh, one of the great Jewish scholars of all time, I can't think of his name right now, but he thought there was an uninterpolated version of it. And Dr. Paul Meyer, who teaches at Western Michigan University, where I was uh, last uh, year, Uh, asked this scholar to write out what he thought the actual Josephus citation was, and he did. The guy died about two years later. They found an Arabic 
interpret or an Arabic version of this that had not been interpolated, and it was almost identical to what this Jewish historian uh, thought it would be. So basically, Josephus says he may have been the Messiah, not as some versions of the quote say he was the Messiah. Josephus wouldn't say that if he wasn't a Christian. But he did talk about Jesus. He did say he was, he may have been the Messiah. And that quotation had to be authentic. Otherwise, when he mentions Jesus later with James and he just says the brother of Jesus without any introduction, that little reference to Jesus would make no sense unless the previous explanation of who Jesus was was in his text. Okay, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I was just kind of wondering, um, since he, he's really detailed if, uh, on some of his other works, like his really exhaustive about the history, uh-huh. why don't you think he mentioned Jesus? Because that's kind of, seems like a big historical event for a Jewish man, you know, because Jesus was born a Jew to claim. Why don't you think he just mentioned more about him? Why well, he, so brief? you know, Jesus was mentioned more than the Roman emperor Tiberius. Even without the New Testament, Jesus is mentioned by 10 ancient non-Christian sources. Tiberius is mentioned by nine. Okay, yeah, I just meant in his source, just because he well, was... Well, Josephus was not a Christian, and the, the fact that he mentioned him at all is pretty spectacular. <laughs> so, and he mentioned James, too. So, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why he didn't mention him more, but it doesn't seem like he had any, any reason to. Okay, yeah, I was just seeing if you had any insight on that. Thanks. Okay. There's a couple of folks over here and back here. Oh, someone here too. I'm sorry. I didn't see you there. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Um, You were saying that um, miracles are used to validate a new message Mm -hmm. or something. And um, if there's no new message to present, do you think that miracles still occur today? I think they can occur today. I don't know if they do. I personally haven't seen any, but I hear of so many uh, accounts of them that my inclination is to say they can't all be false. Right? I've heard of too many healings to say, well, no. They don't occur. I think they occur today still, but I was just wondering. Okay, well, yeah, sure. Yeah, you you can't lock God out. If he wants to do a miracle, he can. It just seems, I I think there's a distinction between the fact of miracles and the gift of miracles. In other words, I think uh, it's factual that miracles can occur and perhaps do occur today, but I don't think anyone has the gift of miracles, like Paul. Paul had the gift of miracles where, with God's help, he could heal anybody he wanted to. Um, in order to authenticate that he truly was from God. But ultimately, that particular gift went away because there was a point where, uh, obviously, Paul couldn't heal himself, and he couldn't even heal Timothy or some of his other brothers. In fact, he said, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Okay, if, if Paul could heal, why didn't he just go heal Timothy? Because apparently he hadn't had the gift, or the gift had been taken from him. But I don't think anyone today can heal people like uh, Paul did uh, that was a gift. Someone has the microphone. Yes. Yes. Um, I guess my question is about uh, when, like, how do we get from God creating, creating Adam and Eve to the world being populated? Mm-hmm. Um, are we all related? Like, or did God create more people besides just Adam and Eve? Well, basically, a lot of times you get the question, where did Cain get his wife, right? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. kind of the question. Well, I think it's quite obvious eHarmony.com. I mean, that, that's where people go today, right? Uh, actually, at the time, 
uh, intercourse between offspring was not a problem because there, there was no genetic defects at that point. So we say incest is voodoo, yeah, or is taboo here, voodoo, taboo here. Voodoo, no. Uh, <laughs> incest is taboo, but that's because there are there's genetic problems. It wasn't at the time. And so the world could populate itself very quickly uh, in a short period of time just by starting with those two. Now, you Ross, who's a, a Christian astrophysicist, has done some work on this. And I think uh, it, ultimately, yeah, we all, all are related. And they trace it all the way back to a small group of people. And no, not just Eve, because you've got to go back to Noah now, remember? You've got to go back to Noah and his offspring. I don't have the details on that, but you can look those up. But yeah, that's how we began. Yes, ma'am. If you believe that everything has a creator who created God. Great question. We covered this last night, but I'll do, I'll do it again briefly. You might not have been here. Uh, since something exists, something must have always existed, right? I mean, because you can't create yourself. We exist, so there must be something that's the uncaused first cause, There's two possibilities. Either the universe is the uncaused first cause or something outside the universe is the uncaused first cause. Uh, Last night, and we reviewed it this morning, we found out the universe is not the uncaused first cause. The surge evidence. Second law, universe expanding, radiation afterglow, great galaxy sees Einstein. Shows that the universe had a beginning. Therefore, it must be something outside the universe that is beginningless. That is the uncaused first cause. Uh, philosophers know there has to be an uncaused first cause. Plato, Aristotle knew this. Aristotle called it the unmoved mover. So there's got to be an uncaused first cause. And if the universe had a beginning, the cause can't be the universe. The cause, if space, matter, and time were created, has to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Hey, if you're timeless, do you need a cause? No, if you're timeless, you never had a beginning, so you don't need a cause. God is the eternal, uncaused first cause. So nobody made God because he's uncaused. He, the buck has to stop somewhere or start somewhere. It starts with God. I got two things. Uh, the first one is, uh, what do you think about Jesus being like pierced through his hands or his wrists or forearms? I've heard there's kind of some... I don't have an opinion on it. Gary Habermas at uh, Liberty University is probably the biggest expert on the resurrection may and i don't know what he says whether it was here or here but as i understand it in the greek when they say uh hand that could mean from here on up so he could have been nailed right here he also could have been nailed right here but some say he would have slipped off the the cross at that point unless he had been roped in which he may have been too so either way he was crucified we know that all right, and uh, your my second thing is uh, about Bart Ehrman. Yeah. So, what do you think about like his claims as far as like the uh, the adulterous woman parable and like John, I think it's seven fifty three to eight eleven about it being added later because it's like always in the margins of Bibles and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, he may be right about some of those, but but Bible scholars have known this for years uh, that there were some areas that may have been uh, put in later. Uh, but none of those insertions, if they are indeed insertions, like the end of Mark, affect any theology. Uh, 
None, none of the insertions in the Gospel of John, like the one about the adulterous woman, that doesn't affect theology at all. So whether they're there or not is really irrelevant in the original text. But the most interesting thing about Ehrman, and we have a blog on this, uh, the question on the blog is, are the New Testament documents reliable? Even Bart Ehrman says yes. You say, how so? Because Ehrman, in 2005, when he wrote the book Misquoting Jesus, tried to get people to doubt that we can reconstruct the New Testament documents. But that same year in 2005, he released a book with Bruce Metzger. Who was Bruce Metzger? He was the top manuscript scholar of the last century. He mentored Bart Ehrman at Princeton University. And he had a classic work in the New Testament, New Testament manuscripts that he and Ehrman updated in 2005. And you know what conclusion they come to in the, in the academic work? that the New Testament documents are reliable. And so the popular book that Ehrman writes the same year, he tries to spin the data to get people to think it can't be relied upon. But in the book he writes to the academic world, he admits what everybody already knows, that the New Testament documents can be trusted. And in fact, he actually has a quote you're not going to believe. Well, maybe you will believe it. Here's what Ehrman says. In the appendix of the paperback version of Misquoting Jesus, he's being interviewed. He says, Bruce Bruce Metzger is one of the great scholars of modern times, and I dedicated the book to him, Misquoting Jesus, because he was both my inspiration for getting into textual criticism and the person who trained me in the field. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him, and even though we may disagree on important religious questions, he is a firmly committed Christian and I am not, we are in complete agreement on a number of very important historical and textual questions. Check this out. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, if he and I were put in a room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement, maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. You say, what? Then what's all the hype about misquoting Jesus? Ehrman's trying to sell books. <laughs> he knows as well as anybody that the New Testament documents can be re- reconstructed with a high degree of accuracy. But his publisher wants to sell books. He wants to sell books. That's all I can think of. I don't know that for sure, but when he's selling it to the academic world, he's telling the truth. When he's selling it to the general public, he's spinning it ever so slightly. But yet in the back of the book, he admits it. So the best refutation of Bart Ehrman is Bart Ehrman. Okay, one or two more questions, then I've got to show you a short video. You'll like it. I, um, I was talking with a friend of mine last week about some of these questions, and he had some really good questions. And I'd like to share some of the materials with him, but he, I know he's going to have an issue with it uh, because it's all in English. And I was wondering if you had any materials in Spanish? This has not been translated into Spanish yet. Does he speak Portuguese? No. Does he speak Finnish? No, only Spanish. Does he speak does he speak New Jerseyan? No. He's learning. It should be. It should be in Spanish, but it's not. So, um I'm sorry. I, I don't have control over that. The publisher does. So. Okay. Do, then do you have any um like suggestions or links or anything yes. that you could Yes. Go to allaboutgod.com. Okay. allaboutgod.com and they have a Spanish series of pages. 
that would be helpful. Okay. Allaboutgod.com. All right. Thank you. Good question. Okay, one more question. And we can deal with more questions at the table if you want, but I want to show you guys something that I think you might like. All right. Uh, This goes back to the whole predestination thing. Are you predestined to ask this? No, I was not. You were not? Okay. Then don't go. But uh, with your whole analogy Uh on the football game and everything, Mm -hmm. I just don't feel that uh, electing to watch the football game is completely analogous to God electing to create the universe. That's the whole problem is uh, that God caused the, the universe to exist, and we didn't the person watching the football game didn't cause it to exist. That's why there's no effect on, on that outcome. That's well, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think the same right. thing is true. Obviously, God has more impact on the world than we have on a football game that's already occurred, right? right. I'm just trying to draw the analogy to say that because you know the outcome doesn't mean that you're causing the peep players on the field to do what they do. That's all I'm saying. Right, but if you did cause the thing to happen, then... Okay, well, you see, God can get his will done through our free will. Explain. Well, uh, by creating us and knowing what we're going to do, he can get, his, free, he can get his, his will done, can he? He didn't have to create us, did he? Right. So by creating us, he thereby allowed his will to be done through our free will. Okay. I know that can make your head explode if you think about that long enough, but... It's true. God knows the outcome. Now, for those of you who are Christians in here, I have some sobering news for you. And that is, if you don't use what we talked about in here, you could be in trouble. Because the evangelism linebacker is out there. The evangelism linebacker, his name is Derwin Gray. He graduated from our seminary. He's now a pastor in Charlotte. And um, if you don't use the material, he may get you. So stand by, ladies and gentlemen. Here at the National Institute for Student Ministries, we've discovered a new method of evangelism that is shaking the very foundation of our thinking. It may appear unorthodox, but frankly, we're shocked with the results. We're amazed at this revolutionary idea, especially designed to boost student evangelism. Why did I want to be the evangelism linebacker? Well, let me put it to you like this. You see, as a fish was created to swim in water, as a bird was created to fly, I was created to knock people out who don't evangelize. The evangelism linebacker deals directly with a variety of students' fears associated with sharing their faith. All right, it's all you. This house has got your name on it. I'm not ready yet. What makes you think I'm ready, though? Fear of rejection, for example. Let me talk to you about fear. Fourth and one, Jerry Rice, what you gonna do? That don't compare to fourth and one in eternity. It doesn't matter who rejects us because we're always accepted by Christ. God loves you. Get off the floor. I'm a lover, not a fighter, baby. He loves you, but it might hurt. Sometimes I'll blow you up, but it's because I love you. Yeah, but just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I need to be out sharing my faith. I mean, ah! don't you run from me! You can't escape my grasp! D. Gray, I throw you 
in the trash. Thanks to the evangelism linebacker, campus evangelism nationwide is up 87%. Ah, thank you, Mr. Good. I'll never do it again. Hey, I can't go to the outreach today. I got, I just got some more important things I got to do. Uh-huh. Hey, man, give me a break. I went to church on Sunday. I got to go. Selfishness? The world needs a message. For God to love the world, it wants to communicate it through you. If you procrastinate, you will open up the gate to a beatdown. Give me that phone, boy. When I see selfishness, it is my job to blow them up. That's what I do. I blow them up so that they can get their eyes off of self and look at Christ, the prize. What's up, baby girl? Nah, I'm busy. We're intrigued, as the linebacker is particularly effective in infiltrating centers of cultural and intellectual exchange. Here you go, here's your double cappuccino, latte mocha with a twist, not too hot, not too cold, perfect for you. Yeah, but anyway, man, did you hear that talk from that guy the other night? Oh, I know, like we were supposed to be sharing our faith in like coffee shop. Whoa! Whoa! Shut out in a coffee shop, baby! You next! It's unlikely that the recent decline in coffee sales has anything to do with our program. Pride comes before the fall. That's Old Testament. Old Testament. You know this. Thanks for the coffee, Darren. Hey, you're welcome. Have a nice day. Yo, mama raised you better than this boy. Don't let me blow you up no more. You see, I think it's fitting because when people have pride, that they're too prideful to share their faith, what I do is I knocks the pride out of them. What I would like to communicate to my brothers and sisters is this. When you least expect it, around the corner, perhaps even under your bed, I can be in a phone wire. I can be everywhere and just know that I'm always watching. Ready to lay the boom on you, baby. Booyah! Ouch. Are you ready for game day? All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is the evangelism linebacker, Derwin Gray. Thanks for being here tonight. If you would, go to our website, crossexamined.org. Sign up for our email. You can get all sorts of other information up there. I thank you very much. And if I can help you in any way, I'll be at the book table for a few minutes or as long as you want. Thanks. And thanks to Matt Morton and to BJ and to all the crew here for putting this thing on.